Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. All right. Hello, all you crazy pod people. Thank you so much for (laughs) tuning in to another episode of Real Lit. We are now working through some fun romancy type things because why the fuck not and sam will be covering some beautiful literature for us today and i of course will be covering some not so beautiful uh movies that you may or may not remember from your past that's a hint i just have to appreciate for posterity's sake the stake god i'm not even drunk yet uh for posterity's sake uh how katie had to uh formally like put herself in prayer hands and like bow her head to like <laughs> who saw herself before she started the recording um, oh, all the time when that i was great yeah when i'm the one who kicks off a recording i always have to like get the jitters out at the beginning i like change yeah. modes semi-professional semi at least barely i mean we're drinking on the job so there you go yeah exactly some people somewhere would would consider this professional-esque there you go professional (laughs) bartenders there you are (laughs) got it okay enough of this shit today uh we are covering for my portion of this drunken mess wuthering heights yes Ooh by emily bronte of the bronte sisters i have never read this book and all i know is that it gets talked about a lot it does um and i am so happy for you that you've never read this um i don't (laughs) we'll talk about it you can make your own judgments afterwards i say that like I am not heavily biased, and that is obviously going to bleed through every moment of my, like, recalling of this book. Uh, But if you haven't noticed, uh, this is a romance, uh, supposedly, I guess. Yeah, you're right. People talk about it a lot. It's an iconic uh, reference. When you think of romances, people think, you know, Pride and Prejudice and Romeo and Juliet and, you know, other Jane Austen stuff and Wuthering Heights is one of those, you know, and um, it's one of those that I don't honestly understand why. I mean, I understand why. It's not that I don't understand. It's that I don't think the reasons behind why it's considered a good classic romance suitable enough or sufficient enough it doesn't make the grade in my opinion not for writing quality I guess necessarily but you guys you'll get it you'll get it I I don't know how to describe why I hate this book so much um it'll just make sense when we get into it (laughs) let's get into it um Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte so One thing that I need to address before we talk about this uh, in terms of the summary is that our narrative is actually uh, a little wonky. So it jumps between points of view, which was not something that was super common uh, for this time for this style of prose, like unless you were writing like um, 
like an epistolary type of novel. So the novels that are written in like letters back and forth between people, those of course changed point of views and those were kind of a common trope. But if you weren't doing that type of thing, then it wasn't very common to jump between narrative things in this way. And this is, uh, so this was kind of unique for the time. We have essentially two separate narrators. In the actual like hard present, our, our baseline narrator is uh, this man named Lockwood. Technically speaking, we are reading his diary, I guess as what's going on that that is what the entirety of the the narrative is it's we're reading his diary of stuff however later on when he's writing stuff in his diary the story that he is telling is being told from his recollection by someone else and it is their words that he is writing down to tell the story within his diary so it is like an inst like a like an inceptioned <laughs> uh, diary entry. So there's two technical narrators here. But we open with Lockwood. It is in 1801 is when we begin our story. Lockwood is a, a man who is a new tenant at a residence, a land residence called Thrushcross Grange in Yorkshire, England. We are um, in uh, Britain. So he is the new tenant here at Thrushcross Grange. I can never say this. I'm going to say that every time I say this, especially the drunker I get. Thrushcross, thrush, thrush cross, like a cross with a thrush in it. Thrush, thrush cross. It's so hard. Grange in TC, Yorkshire. At, at TC Grange. <laughs> TC Grange. There we go. <laughs> Pays a visit to his landlord, Lockwood does. He He's here, a new tenant at TC Grange in Yorkshire, and he is paying a visit to his landlord because TC Grange is on like a larger estate, basically, of neighborhood. So this is how neighborhoods worked. We covered this kind of a bit, a little bit when we talked about Pride and Prejudice, I think. Um, probably not too much, just enough for the like story to make sense but it, it essentially neighborhoods were owned by like the super rich person in the area who owned everything and then there were little parts of it that were little tenants and they had their own market in there and so when you came into that part of the country you were in that person's land uh visiting their estate you know what i'm saying so Lockwood is staying at TC Grange, which is a smaller little um, area, living land, and his landlord of the, the current neighborhood is a man named Heathcliff. Uh, Heathcliff lives in a very remote house that is in Moorlands. Uh, it's a farmhouse, and it is called Wuthering Heights. This is the name of his uh, his residence. When Lockwood comes, he comes to visit Heathcliff. Heathcliff is not <laughs> a nice dude. Lockwood is very put off by kind of how rude Heathcliff is. Lockwood, when he is there, he you know is let into the house. He meets a sort of reserved, younger-looking woman. 
and he meets uh, a man named Joseph, who is a um, servant, an old, older man uh, servant, who is also not very nice. <laughs> and this uh, young boy, uh, he calls him a boy. He was probably not actually a boy. He's technically a young man. But this young man's name is Hareton Earnshaw. And this boy is an uneducated young man, so uneducated and enough that based on his speech, Lockwood at first consider just assumes that he's a servant. Everyone <laughs> in this house is just not happy just it's really obviously not a happy place no one is nice in here that he's come to like visit everyone is kind of sullen and so he is really like god i can't wait to get fucking out of here but um he has to you know like sit through the meal that he came to like visit them manners are you know a huge thing back then but unfortunately by the time they finished their meal that he came to like see and hang out with them for uh, by this time, a storm has snowed them in for the night. And so he's like, God, Fuck, I'm stuck. It. Yeah, basically. Uh, <laughs> so, and at first, even like, this is how bad these people are. At first, Lockwood is like, well, shit, I'm going to have to stay the night. And Heathcliff kind of doesn't want him to, but just kind of like begrudgingly accepts it. <laughs> And so, like, he's relegated to, uh, a, like, a random spare room by one of the um, servants. When he's in this room, he finds in this uh, little room, like, some old books and some old things. And one of the things he finds is a diary. So he's bored out of his mind. He doesn't want to talk to anyone in the house because they're all fucking assholes. <laughs> so he just hangs out all night for the rest of the night in this room. And he reads, you know, some entries from this diary. This diary was apparently the diary of someone named Catherine Earnshaw. And he's kind of reading about her little exploits. It's apparently like a young girl's diary. And he's just like, huh, interesting. Uh, and he kind of passes away the night like that. He falls asleep, but his sleep is so horrible. Um, he's also getting a cold by this point, which you'll kind of learn more later, uh, basically. But he, he has a really bad night. Uh, because he has a nightmare. In his nightmare, he he dreams about a ghostly Catherine Earnshaw, the the writer of this diary. He dreams uh, and dreams up a figure of her as a little girl at the gate at the window. Excuse me, begging to be let in and clawing at his arms. And it, he wakes up and you know yelling and kind of uh, terrified by this nightmare and. His yelling wakes up Heathcliff. It is clearly early in the morning and not everyone is up yet, but Heathcliff runs into the room and is like, what are you doing in this room? And Lockwood is like, your servant fucking took me here. This is this where, been, where the fuck do you think I've been this whole time? He's like, no, why are you in this room? And he's like, I don't know. Ask your servant. I've just been sleeping here, basically. And he's like, why are you yelling? And Lockwood tells him the dream he had. And this dream super disturbs Heathcliff. He basically is very short with Lockwood and just says, you know, go leave, leave my presence, my go house. downstairs, yeah. go down. I don't, yeah, go away, basically. So Lockwood, you know, leaves the room, goes downstairs. But he, Heathcliff's response, like 
made Lockwood curious. So he kind of hangs for a second to see what Heathcliff is going to do when he's out of the room. And Heathcliff immediately starts breaking down and sobbing. He runs to the window and he like rips open the window and starts calling for Catherine to come in. Lockwood is like, that's weird. He's still an asshole. And then leaves, <laughs> basically. <laughs> He is like, I don't care if it's still too much snow. I don't care if I should still technically stay around for another day. I can't stay in here. I hate all of you. So he's walking his way home. But of course, it is much too cold. And he already was developing a cold from trying and failing to walk home last night. So by the time he finally gets back to TC Grange, has fallen quite ill. Uh, from the the weather and all of that so he has to kind of get laid up uh, and taken care of at his new estate and one of the people that works at his estate that is now one of his servants at this estate is a housekeeper named Ellen her nickname is Nellie Dean and he is laid up now and sick and he can't stop thinking about how rude everyone was at Heathcliff and what the like the vibe was so fucking weird and Heathcliff's weird ass room and the diary entries and now he's just he's a nosy bitch basically Lockwood is very much like I really fucking want to know what is up with those guys like and he remembers before he went to visit TC or before he went to visit Heathcliff went earlier that day when he was you know at his at tc grange he had talked to nelly and nelly had told him that you know she had been with the family since she was a little girl basically and so she like knew like everything about them so he's like you know what i'm gonna fucking do i'm gonna call nelly in here and be like i'm so sick i need someone to keep me occupied and tell me stories nelly tell me everything about how this these awful people came to be living at Wuthering Heights. And Nellie is like, oh, it's not a, a it's not a fun story. Like you really don't want to know. You don't want me like bothering you and you need to recover. He's like, no, 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 please, please, I I'm begging you to tell me. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And so we now get for a very long time with just a little bit interspersed here and there of Lockwood going, coming back because he has to like interrupt himself. He gets better at one point and then like goes back the next day when, and like starts talking to her again. Most of the rest of it from here on out is Nellie Dean telling this story. So she sits down and talks to the Lockwood about the story of the Earnshaws at Wuthering Heights. She says that 30 years ago, the Earnshaws were living at Wuthering Heights. And remember the young man that he saw at Heathcliff, Mr. Heathcliff's house was named Hareton Earnshaw. You remember, right? He thought Hareton was a servant, if you recall. And apparently he is not. So the Earnshaws were the possessors of Wuthering Heights 30 years ago. They lived there with their children, Hindley, and Catherine, and they had a servant, and that was Nellie herself. Mr. Earnshaw, you know, had to travel for his work a lot. When he comes back from a trip one time, 
it's not important where or why. He comes back from a trip at one point and he brings with him, <laughs> he would always bring with him gifts for his kids, like strange ass gifts. And one day this gift is literally a young orphan. <laughs> this is a young Romani boy. Unfortunately, they they use the G slur often in this story. It is um, pretty bad. It's just kind of a trigger warning, I guess, here, or content warning for any listeners out here. Um, the characterization thus far of this young boy, in my personal opinion, and it is one that I am pretty sure is shared with a, a good portion of scholars nowadays, at the very least, understand that the characterization of this young boy as we progress throughout this story is super problematic because it is probably 100% tied simply to the fact that he is Romani. He is a young orphan. They have no idea where he came from. Uh, I guess Mr. Earnshaw, you know, saw him begging for food or something like, I don't remember the exact reason he picked the poor boy up, but it's something super cliche and super problematic where he was just like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be your white savior, young man. I'm going to bring you into my house. And he brings this young Romany boy into the house and he names him because obviously whatever name he had before doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Uh, So he names this young boy Heathcliff. This is the Mr. Heathcliff that Mr. Lockwood just met as his tenant. So this is the origin story of Heathcliff. Mr. Earnshaw brings Heathcliff uh, home and is just like, all right, we have a third kid now. (laughs) It pisses Hindley off especially because he treats Heathcliff very, very dotingly. He becomes Mr. Earnshaw's like clear favorite over even his own daughter who was before his favorite, his daughter, Catherine. He's not a good dad. He's super neglectful, really. Um, He likes Catherine more than Hindley, but he just dotes on Heathcliff much more than he does his kids. And his wife dies uh, when they are very young, and that gets even worse. And there's not a lot of disciplining or sort of you know, rearing happening from the dad outside of the rearing done by the servants with them. So the kids are, of course, pretty unruly and pretty um, wild. Uh, Hindley and Heathcliff, of course, are constantly at odds because, uh, you know, Heathcliff is treated like a prince, even though Hindley is technically the rightful son of the uh, estate and so Hindley is always quite jealous and quite angry at Heathcliff uh, you know beats him a, a whole bunch however his sister Catherine doesn't feel the same way at all about Heathcliff and she and Heathcliff become like like suctioned to each other they they're all about each other they are the yin and yang peas in a pod whatever fucking cliche you want to call them that's it Uh, They're just children just obsessed with each other, basically, uh, and would do anything for each other. Later on, after essentially uh, their father dies, Hindley departs for the university. So for a while, Catherine and Heathcliff are on their own, and it's, you know, a great time for them. But eventually, unfortunately, Hindley comes back, uh, and he is, of course, the new master now of Wuthering Heights because his father is dead. So 
he brings back from uh, the university a wife as well, and her name is Frances. Uh, Frances is honestly a really sweet woman, kind of by all accounts, and Hindley, how for how annoying and kind of not nice and not a good dude Hindley is, he is absolutely adoring of Francis, and it is almost a humanizing moment for him because he just clearly like adores the ground she walks on, and she's really sweet, and he's you know excited to have a sister and excited for all of this stuff, and so now that he is the master. He is allowing Heathcliff to stay, but now Heathcliff has to be a servant, as Hindley believes is the rightful role that Heathcliff should be playing, because obviously non-white children have to be servants, you know. Heathcliff and Catherine are still thick as thieves. It just now becomes a thing that Catherine routinely gets in trouble for, (laughs) because it's a servant boy, and she is a lady is going to be a lady even though she's still a child and so they they're still t- together just all the time one day they're kind of running around the estate even though they're not supposed to they're not supposed to be like running all over the place but they go to thrush cross grange tc grange together to spy on the current tenants there when they're kids they're spying on the tenants which are um a mr and Mrs. Linton and their two children, Edgar Linton and Isabella Linton. Isabella is about Catherine's age, basically. Uh, Edgar is maybe not as old as Hindley is, kind of maybe in the middle between Catherine and Hindley. When Heathcliff and Catherine are there, they're just kind of like spying. They're just doing kid shit. They're, you know, like hiding in the bushes and they're like laughing at the stupid things that they're watching the other kids do and whatever. You know what I'm saying? Unfortunately, when they go there, like the Lintons have a dog and the dog finds the kids like hiding around in the bushes and is, you know, abruptly like, you don't live here. I am a dog. Attack. So the dog attacks Catherine. So the Lintons, when they find out what's happening and what all the ruckus is about, they're like, oh no, this is Catherine uh, Earnshaw. This is our, uh, you know, our landlord's daughter. Uh, oh no, let's let's make sure that we uh, heal her up. And I don't know who this ruffian is that is with her. Uh, we'll just send him back to the estate. And so they send Heathcliff home, despite Heathcliff vehemently fighting against this he refuses to leave Catherine with them but they eventually wrangle him away and bring him back to Wuthering Heights so Catherine has to um heal up at TC Grange with the Lintons for a little while it's been like a month a long time and when she comes back from her time healing at the Lintons something has clearly changed for Heathcliff and her because Heathcliff now sees that oh she likes these other two kids that they were making fun of earlier before she likes them now they're friends so they come and visit a lot and uh, even though Isabella is her age her friend is Edgar Linton and Heathcliff does not like this but of course Heathcliff is a servant so whenever the Lintons come and visit Hindley forces Heathcliff away because 
also, of course, Catherine's not supposed to be hanging out with Heathcliff all that much. And Edgar, following Hindley's uh, example, basically thinks the same stuff about Heathcliff, you know, thinks he's a ruffian and awful and, you know, savage. And, you know, they make fun of him constantly. Heathcliff at one point when they're kids, you know, tries and fucks Edgar up. Like they get in a, a physical fight and uh, Hindley locks Heathcliff in the attic for the rest of the day as punishment. And so Heathcliff is just absolutely enraged. He is vowing revenge in his eyes for the wrongs that have been done to him. So unfortunately, uh, Francis she gets pregnant. It's not unfortunate that she gets pregnant. It is unfortunate un that once she gives birth to her son, she dies shortly uh, thereafter. Her son is named Harriton Earnshaw. So we have now the Harriton Earnshaw that Lockwood met at the beginning as well. This is Harriton, who's just been born. Hindley really, really goes downhill after Francis dies. Like I said, um, he was he just doted on her when she dies. He goes down a really bad route. He becomes an alcoholic. He's super abusive. It's really bad. Uh, at one point, even he knocks his own son off of like the second story ledge. And it is only Heathcliff. It's only because of Heathcliff's presence that Harriton is saved from probably dying. He's only like two years old. And he just is dropped over the ledge of a second story like uh, you know, balcony basically, and Heathcliff catches him, you know, out of instinct. And it's super gross, but Heathcliff, you know, thinks later on immediately, almost immediately after this happens, he almost kind of is angry at himself for doing it because if he had ever wanted to get his full revenge on Hindley, that would have been the surefirest way to, do, to have done it, to just let Harrison die and not catch him. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't in Heathcliff to do that. So he catches the kid just instinctively. And that's the kind of shit that is happening in Wuthering Heights at this point. It's been a couple years now, as I said, because, you know, uh, Harrison is suddenly two years old, even though we just talked about the fact that he was born. So yeah, like some years have been going by in all of this progressing of like the states of these characters and what they're going through together. Catherine and Heathcliff are still very close, but it's different. Essentially, ever since Edgar and her became friends, it's been very different. And Heathcliff absolutely hates Edgar Linton, and Edgar absolutely hates Heathcliff, obviously. It comes to pass that Catherine eventually becomes engaged to Edgar, and she confesses to Nellie one night that she loves Heathcliff and she wants to marry Heathcliff, but Aww. she obviously cannot because uh, the fact that he is, um, you know, not white, the fact that he is a servant, um, it's pretty gross. She doesn't know any better, obviously. She just knows what people have taught her. And so she also feels like she loves Edgar as well, but she doesn't love Edgar the same way she loves Heathcliff. And it, there's like a distinction made in this conversation. And essentially that, uh, you know, she she is super upset about it, but she doesn't see what the other option is, that she doesn't really have another option. 
because the only one that she would want to choose for herself is Heathcliff and she can't do that. So obviously the, the second best choice in the scenario is to marry the other dude that she loves, which is Edgar, uh, and that she wants to help Heathcliff and she wants to still be in his life, but she knows <laughs> Heathcliff is not going to be happy because he hates Edgar, obviously, you know, and she knows, of course, too, you can tell that she knows too Heathcliff loves her you know it's just a it's it's a very very sad conversation basically unfortunately unbeknownst to Catherine and Nellie at this time Heathcliff was overhearing the conversation he was like standing outside the door at this time he only hears part of it however he only hears enough essentially that he thinks that what the conversation is happening is that Catherine is in love with Edgar and is going to marry him now and thinks that Heathcliff is low status and beneath her. That's all he kind of hears really about the conversation and he can't take it anymore and he flees. He like runs away. When Catherine realizes this, uh, she falls very ill. She's really distraught and upset. Unfortunately, he doesn't come back. Uh, so she eventually recovers and she and Edgar do marry and she moves into TC Grange with uh, her new husband and her new sister Isabella and she becomes very happy uh, and they're hanging out together. It's been three years now that she and Edgar have been married and she's now Catherine Linton, obviously. Heathcliff returns unexpectedly. It is legitimately out of the blue. No one has seen him these last th three, almost four years now. And not only this, but he is now a wealthy gentleman. Catherine, when of course he comes, she is beside herself happy because she hasn't seen him and she's in love with him. And Edgar, you can tell Edgar knows this to a certain extent, but he also loves Catherine, A, and B, he's happy in the sense that he won anyway, regardless, and he won technically before even Heathcliff went away. It's not like Heathcliff went away and then Edgar, like, zoomed in and stole his girl. He had, you know, proposed and wooed Catherine already when Heathcliff was already there. And she had already said yes before that had even happened. You know what I'm saying? So there, there is this sense in Edgar that is, in my opinion at least, uh, well-deservedly sort of understanding about the fact that Catherine is very happy that her childhood friend is here. And so he's very hospitable at first. And is very much like, absolutely, you have to, you know, hang out with us now that you're back. It's so wonderful to see you guys back. You know, you've made Catherine so happy, all that fun stuff. So now Heathcliff is back. Who knows where he's staying and why, but he's back. Okay. Um, <laughs> while he is now back, as uh, some time has gone past, Catherine learns Isabella has now become infatuated with Heathcliff. She is so infatuated with Heathcliff that she gets angry at Catherine because Catherine is obviously Heathcliff's like only other like purpose in the world, essentially. Uh, and if Catherine would just, you know, 
let uh, her and him be together, then everything would be fine. But Catherine's obviously just jealous and won't let it to happen. And um, Catherine is really awful to her when she learns this. She brings Heathcliff into the room and outs Isabella's crush on him, basically, just to make fun of her. And Heathcliff makes fun of her with Catherine. And it's really, really not fun and not nice. And so when this happens, of course, Isabel is heartbroken and embarrassed beyond everything and is hurt. Uh, and so Catherine is very happy that she's done this. It makes her happy to see that Isabella now knows that she's never going to have Heathcliff because Heathcliff is hers. She is satisfied on that account. Unbeknownst to Catherine, however, Heathcliff is now that he has learned this on the down low, encouraging Isabella's infatuation with him and reciprocating. And he is doing this for no other reason than he is trying. He wants to eventually be able to have this in his back pocket as a revenge and uh, pain that he can inflict on Catherine for marrying Edgar and not marrying him. It gets so bad. Like Heathcliff gets really, really, it, it's bad. It's like to the point where it's pretty fucking obvious that Catherine and Heathcliff are in love with each other and they'd be having a full-blown affair if there weren't so many goddamn people around them all the time that kind of make it impossible. <laughs> uh, fucked and up. They're fucked up. Yeah. It, it's really, really bad. Cringy. And Nellie, remember, is the person who's telling this. So she is the, you know, their servant. And she's seeing all of this. Like, she's basically, the only reason we get this story is because Nellie is every bit a, a nosy bitch as Lockwood is. And so she's always, like, hanging around and, like, overhearing shit that she's not supposed to hear. But, like, it's just not good. Uh, and it's so cringy and so bad that eventually, because it, this isn't to say that they're, that she and Heathcliff are always like doe-eyed at each other, that's not what's happening. They're actually often fighting with each other, like really badly fighting with each other because of course she is married to another man and he cannot marry her even though they're in love. And they are constantly being assholes to each other. And it is so bad to the point that finally, Edgar hears to the super extent, like specific, he's honestly tried really hard. He is, as this time has gone on, he's tried to kind of distance himself and not get involved in it because, because he doesn't want to make his wife upset, but he is very easily, as time has gone on, hating Heathcliff more and more, thinking that the man is awful, wanting him to you know, stay away from his wife. Um, but not just that, just stay away from his wife, not because he wants to fuck her, but also because he's an awful person that hurts his wife and he loves Catherine. And so eventually they have a really bad fight that is so bad. Edgar comes in and Heathcliff makes 
a really like gross comment that is essentially very elusive to the entire dynamic between the three of them. And Edgar is so kind of surprised at the audacity of it that for a minute he kind of just sits there and he like leans against a chair and is just kind of hanging his head like, I can't believe my life has come to this. And Heathcliff kind of questions his manhood at that moment. And Edgar looks up and punches Heathcliff square in the face (laughs) and kicks him off of his land and has the servants, you know, take him off. And Catherine is very upset at this, at Edgar. She is very mad that he has kicked Heathcliff off and has punched Heathcliff. And she refuses to admit that she's done anything wrong. And so she responds to this entire situation by locking herself in her room. And she is refusing to eat. She does this for so long. (laughs) Nellie actually believes that she's faking a lot of her like illness because we don't really know this until later and it pisses me off but because I know it I'm gonna get to tell you this she's pregnant with Edgar's kid at this point she and her husband are having a baby she is pregnant with Edgar's child and she has locked herself in her room and refuses food and she does this for weeks to the point that she makes herself very ill, but Nellie hasn't been telling Edgar this, and Edgar has been because he doesn't think anything is that that serious. Does he know that she's Nellie pregnant? hasn't told him? Oh, okay. oh he knows that go. she's pregnant, but but he doesn't know that she is doing a hunger strike, basically, and that she is refusing to meet him, and that she's waiting for him to come and talk to her. Nellie hasn't mediated between the two what each other's understanding is of what's going on. Edgar thinks that she is just taking some time to kind of recover from the fact that she's mad that, you know, she is mad that he kicked Heathcliff off the the place, but she's also mad at Heathcliff for hurting her and she just needs some time to recover from it. He, thinking this is reasonable, is trying to leave her alone. And so he's like actively avoiding going up and talking to her because he's trying to give her space. And she is up there acting like taking a hunger strike, like Gandhi before his day, basically, (laughs) of like, unless he comes up here and explicitly apologizes to me and the affront that he's put on me and, you know, the, the suspicion that he's put on me about all of this, then I, you know, he just doesn't give a shit about me and that's fine. And I'll just waste away up here because he clearly doesn't fucking love me. And Nellie has just not told the other what both of them are feeling so she just lets this go on because she has decided that Catherine is and I mean she's not wrong but she's decided that Catherine is essentially a bitch that just needs to get the fuck over herself she's not wrong but she also especially when the fact that she's pregnant and she continues doing this for a long time and starts showing kind of active like scary signs of some like uh you know malnutrition type of delusional issues here she should have gone and told edgar what was up 
before now but she doesn't until finally one night she's like having a fit that is so bad she has to go get edgar and edgar you know comes and sees her and he's like how is she like this you didn't tell me he's very pissed off like you should have fucking told me that this about all of this before now uh and is very upset at nelly so she falls ill because of her entire hunger strike did she have a miscarriage because she should have had a miscarriage like a month ago like like when you're pregnant when you're pregnant you can't just like go on a fucking hunger strike for weeks like you don't eat for a week and then you have a fucking miscarriage (laughs) so so it is it is basically the way that it is described is that it's basically on the cusp that she falls so ill and that she own that Nellie only finally goes and gets Edgar when she realizes that this is actually something that could now be damaging severely the baby. Um, and so she goes and gets Edgar, but she never fully recovers from the illness that she has caused her body from this. So now she is like, she's almost going to give birth, but she is so ill that now she is very ill more than she would normally be because she's pregnant and she's immunocompromised but she's also they're also trying to keep the baby because they want the baby to also be able to be alive and be well so it the is baby ain't well tragedy yeah yeah that baby's not well that baby's for sure coming out with deformities especially if she was close enough if this was all happening close enough to her giving birth, like towards the end stages of pregnancy where all the major developments like are in their final forms, basically, like she fucked this baby over. He's going to, he or she, that child is going to come out with all sorts of problems, deficiencies that people are not capable of taking care of in the 1800s or 17. When does this come out? Um, 1800s? I mean- yeah like early late 17 early 1800s is yeah this kid especially in a wealthy family they're gonna throw this kid in a river like that's not this is so fucked up (laughs) sorry tangent go ahead (laughs) You're, you're, you're totally fine and by all accounts you should be right which I will be the only thing that I'll I'll allude to here because it sounds like our story is coming to an end Oh, that's cute. Our story is just beginning. (laughs) Not at all. We're like a third of the way through. I know this is a fucking monstrosity of a book. So she is now gravely ill and also pregnant. And it is very clear to everyone involved that she is so ill that if they are able to save the baby, she is probably not going to make it out of this whether or not the baby makes it out of this is now basically everyone's priority like they're trying to keep her alive enough and she is trying to stay alive enough for her baby too because she wants her baby to live but she is now so ill that everyone knows like she's probably gonna die soon can you Um, imagine just for a minute can you imagine being so fucking petty that you literally starved yourself because your husband wouldn't come apologize to you even though in his eyes he has no idea that he did anything wrong because guess what men are fucking dumb sorry to all our male listeners but y'all do not pick up on things like you have to be told when you fucked up like 
She was just like, oh, he'll figure it out. He'll come and apologize. And then I haven't eaten for weeks. And guess what? Now I'm dead. I was so fucking petty. I was so petty about the fact that I am clearly have feelings for another man that's not my husband. I was so petty about it that I fucking killed myself. That is a level of petty that I can't even fucking imagine. Um, like like I'm petty but that's so petty it is it is queen petty um that is the pettiest Catherine is the pettiest bitch truly um quite quite petty have you seen the meme that is going around uh of the uh the list of things that like women died of in like the old like Victorian era of romances and novels Uh and it is like a gazillion items long and it's shit like this is the stuff that women have died of in terms of victorian literature and it's like uh too many pillows (laughs) she was served sherry that was too cold (laughs) so stupid and it's one of these things that is like Catherine linton nay earnshaw is calling all of these bitches and is like, listen, until you go on a hunger strike while you are nine months pregnant, your bitch asses better be staying alive. I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, that's fucking, what a goddamn mess. (laughs) And it's, okay. And 1700s, 1800s, it's not like the servants and her were not well aware that children in utero need fucking nutrients. Like that's not yeah. a that's not a modern medical discovery that we just figured out. Like and see, and this is like, what. <laughs> so this is actually why it pisses me off. This is one of the the twofold reasons why it pisses me off that you don't actually know she's pregnant until later. I will tell you when you find out she's pregnant. I will she tell you the moment dies during childbirth. That is the exact moment that we learn in the story that she was pregnant during that whole time. We don't learn that fucking fact until right then. And I'm like, Nellie D, Emily, forget those characters. Emily Bronte, you didn't think that was some fucking important ass information that you should have fucking told us that was a like <laughs> concurrent thing happening this entire time? Really? That's some bullshit. That's such bullshit. And like- really? women know okay i don't i don't specifically know how old catherine is at this point like she's I'm like in her early 20s yeah i was gonna say i'm gonna assume she's really young like relatively young not romeo and juliet young but young yeah and she knows she has to know and even if she doesn't know the fucking servants for sure know that when you have a child you need to fucking eat yep. a lot because your yep. body is feeding for you're eating for two people you can't just yep. go on a fucking hunger strike oh yep. my god yes hold on to this this thought that you're having especially about the servants because we'll touch on this later when i'm finished with this entire summary the um, rage yeah but just but, but hold on to it 
So um, by the by, Nellie, uh, Nellie tells us this. I can't remember fully in the summary or in the narrative right now if we find out simultaneously or if she tells us about this later. Um, but basically, while this is happening, just FYI, Heathcliff is in the process of taking advantage of Hindley. In case you forgot, Hindley with his son, who and Hindley is now an abusive alcoholic because his wife died. Hindley is now just an awful person, a drunken, abusive asshole. Heathcliff has come back and he is now, while this is all taking place, at Wuthering Heights, tricking Hindley and gambling with him to the point where he tricks Hindley into gambling the mortgage on his property. I was going to say, it's got to be some dumb shit that got Heathcliff that house. Uh-huh. So <laughs> okay. he takes advantage of Hindley's basically like depravity and is just like, snatch, got your fucking house now. This house is mine. Uh, and he gets a whole bunch of money with it. And so what we learn in this instance was that Heathcliff was a wealthy gentleman, but he was only wealthy because he, through, through nefarious means, let's just say that. They're not great means. So he gets money to like pay off his own debts on the side and he gets a big ass house uh, and has fucked Hindley over in the process. So he is three for three <laughs> on this, basically. Uh, all of the things that he wanted out of life. Uh, stick it to Hindley however he fucking can, pay off his debts and have the childhood home where he wanted to be with Catherine this entire time anyway. That's what's happening while she's on her hunger strike. But Catherine is now ill, as I said, when Heathcliff learns through the grapevine, obviously, that Catherine is now so ill that she is dying. Uh, he is beside himself. He comes to visit her in secret uh, when Edgar is um, like gone. He comes to her and um, it's they finally do do what would be considered affair worthy. They like kiss and hold each other and you know they're like on the couch and stuff and I don't know what Emily Bronte is trying to allude to but like they're at the Felice making out maybe there's some dry humping involved who even knows she's nine months pregnant I don't know what the logistics of this are supposed to look like but apparently this is happening I mean uh, <laughs> sex makes the baby come out so yeah, it does actually. It, um, so this happens and he literally stays until the very last moment before Edgar is like down the street on his way back home and then he fucking leaves and his brow beats Nellie into making sure that she gives Heathcliff an update every day on what Kathy, how Kathy is so that he knows finally, eventually, whether or not Kathy is alive or not like he knows the very moment that she is dead because he doesn't leave the actual property um he stays on TC Grange and uh just waits for whenever Nellie comes back out and tells him updates and so right after this she goes into labor she gives birth and she dies she has given birth to a daughter they name this daughter Catherine uh Kathy for short when Nellie tells this story, oh, by the way, shit, 
this is so bad. I can't believe I fucking forgot to tell this. We have to rewind for a second. I'm so sorry. Not only when he was also getting the mortgage for Wuthering Heights from Hindley, Heathcliff also eloped with Isabella to just fuck with Catherine further. They are so toxic for each other. I'm glad she did. Yeah, it's not great. So now they are the most fucking toxic. They're both petty as fuck, too. Yeah, they are (sighs) awful people. (laughs) Um, so anyway, that happened. Just FYI, just FYI. Now Catherine is dead. She's given birth to her daughter. They name the daughter Kathy, Catherine. When Nellie tells Heathcliff, it is a really, it is honestly, in my opinion, one of the only moments that Heathcliff is even remotely sort of like understandable and relatable because he flies into, you know, this, this, a distraught, crazed rage, you know, screaming that he doesn't understand what the point of existence is now that she is not also in existence with him in this life. Uh, He calls on her ghost to haunt him for as long as he lives. You know, if there is an afterlife, then she will haunt him because uh, he deserves it. Yeah, because he deserves it. And then he leaves. After this, shortly after this, Heathcliff is now, of course, married to Isabella, whom he hates and doesn't like at all. And his only love of his entire life, the only person in life that he gives a damn about is now dead. So Heathcliff, who wasn't a great person to begin with, in case you couldn't tell, is now an even worse dude. One night, Isabella comes running in in the middle of the night to TC Grange. She doesn't, they don't wake her brother up when this happens because when she comes running in, she's bleeding. She's been assaulted. And uh, they're like, what what happened? How are you here? Tell us what's going on. And Isabella sits down and is like, yeah, well, uh, it's been a nightmare. Obviously, ever since I eloped with Heathcliff, I regretted it instantaneously, realized he, you know, had just been playing me basically, but now I was his. Uh, so I've essentially been, you know, beaten and treated like shit uh, ever since we've been gone. So it's apparently been getting so bad because, by the way, Heathcliff kept Hindley around, even though Hindley no longer is the owner of Wuthering Heights. Heathcliff kept him around because now Hindley is Heathcliff's servant. Yeah, did I? So Heathcliff is just basking in the happiness of being able to treat one of his like arch nemeses like shit uh, and uh, hating his wife because his wife is not Catherine and Catherine is dead. And he also loves the shit out of Harriton Earnshaw, but only because since he's been around, he's been able to raise Harriton Earnshaw himself essentially because like I said Hindley is an alcoholic and an abusive shit anyway and so Heathcliff has just let Hareton Earnshaw run around like a little Tasmanian devil basically and so the little kid you know can't read can't write he's as dumb as a bag of rocks at this point now and is like just a little terror essentially and this is Isabella's life And so Hindley at one point when he is not quite sober, but sober enough 
that he can have a good conversation, looks at Isabella and is like, you're going to know when it's time. When it's time, you better try and fucking help me. You got, you got me? You feel? And Isabella's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And Henry's like, you know what I'm talking about. Help me. You'll know. And she's like, oh, okay. Uh, so okay. what? Henley, Henley is the older man, right? Henley is the, was the older brother of Catherine. So the one that when his, their dad died, he took over. Okay, okay, the okay, estate, okay. Made Heathcliff the servant. Was a yeah, shit yeah, yeah. Okay. to okay. Heathcliff. There's a lot of him. H names. There's a lot of yes. H names, and I'm having yes, trouble keeping are. track of which H man is in charge or what we're talking about. Perfectly understandable and reasonable. Quite easy to get them all mixed up. <laughs> the gin. The gin is yes. kicking in. <laughs> What Henley is talking about is Henley tries to kill Heathcliff at one point. Yeah, that and makes sense. it doesn't work. Uh, he tries to essentially attack Heathcliff with a knife. Heathcliff sees it just before it's happening, gets the better of Henley. Henley dies in that skirmish, uh, at least from what I can recall. He either dies in that skirmish or he's you know injured in the process so bad that he dies soon after, something like that. And so Isabella herself is like, well, fuck, that's what he was talking about. Why didn't I fucking help him? I'm an asshole. Damn it. And so she- I mean, are you though? Isabella is arguably the best person in this entire- Well, no, she she is the first ray of sunshine- in the story so far i'll say that mm. she is the she is the first good one so far disagree disagree she ooh, knew ooh. she i mean i don't think anyone is a ray Fair. of sunshine she but knew she was the, young i guess but she knew what the fuck she was getting into she knew that heathcliff was in love with fucking Catherine the whole yeah. time and yet she married him anyways clearly as a fucking revenge plot against yeah, but, Catherine, but think about what he's and all this other her. bullshit yeah okay he abused her like that's fucking horrible before and that I- though you gotta think you gotta think okay so heathcliff was a shit ass to her but then went and wooed her in the middle of the night you know and is making love to her this older man this young woman who is convinced and not really and she's not really wrong about it, about the fact that her sister-in-law hates her. So all he has to do is play into that, woo her enough, make her feel special. I mean, I, mean, I guess, but she's also a bitch uh, gold digger because she only wanted him after he had fucking money. She had no interest in him when he was just the Romani servant boy. So Fair. Fuck, fuck her. Fuck everybody in this novel so far. They're all fucking assholes. I'll accept that. Henley dies. She's like, well, shit. One night, soon after this, they're getting in a fight again. And she is finally like, I fucking had it. And instead of trying to self-preservation instinct kicking in, she yells back at Heathcliff, basically, and makes him so mad that he stabs her in the fucking throat. She is able to get away in this strange random skirmish okay somehow and runs off and runs to tc grange is like i just need to get away like i just need to run you guys need to help me leave right now how are you talking how are you talking ho 
you got your knife your so, fucking throat slit this so doesn't I guess make sense what he tried what he tried to do was like stab like deep stabber in the throat what he ended up doing was by way of her seeing it happening is she avoids him actually being able to dig it in like he was trying to so it only cuts her like 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 a glancing blow oh like a superficial cut yeah okay so she's still stabbed in the throat and it's still bleeding profusely but she hasn't been like oh i just had a knife go through my entire trachea yeah okay 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 Because I was going to so, say, how the fuck did this bitch not just collapse on the yeah, floor and die? She definitely cause... like needed stitches, but she wasn't like, I have metal, you know, digging into my vocal cords or something. Got it. Uh, so yeah. So like when this happened, she was somehow able to get away and she runs away. And so that's when she came in, she was bleeding profusely from her fucking neck. So she's like, I just need you to fix this up enough so that I can run like you need to help me run away because he's going to come here <laughs> the minute he like wakes up or something there's some reason why he can't immediately run after her he like is locked in a room or something <laughs> and uh so Nellie does that and that's why she doesn't wake Edgar up um when his sister comes she just helps her and he, you know dresses her wound real quick and then they whisk her away in the middle of the night basically and she is able to escape uh and Nelly, is gone nelly seems like both the best and worst servant maybe ever in existence like yes. servants are horrible like <laughs> full full stop if you fucking have a servant you're the worst fucking kind of person and fuck you right and I'm sure this was not actually a servant, but a slave because of the time that we're in. Um, but she's definitely not. She uh, she is at least white. That is one thing we are aware of um, because she is not. She is only classed in class systems. The reason that she is, a, is the reason that she is a servant. It's made that's made clear in okay. the novel. Well, that explains why she wasn't just whipped to death for some mm-hmm. of the shady shit she's already been a part of okay mm-hmm. that explains it but but still like i don't know it's it's hard because i know this is yeah. happening this is in england right i'm assuming yes. or is this america okay this is england. It's england yeah my knowledge of servants and slaves in britain is very minimal compared to like american slavery and if any of this stuff was happening in American slavery, Nellie would have been dead a long time ago. Oh, yeah. She'd like, been, uh, yeah, like hiding. Doesn't matter her good intention, she would have died for some of the like yeah, bad decisions she like, made. Yeah, yeah hiding, sure. hiding things from her master and all this bullshit. Yep. Like, so her doing this like shady backdoor shit, like, oh, well my master's sister came to me and was like, just help me, just fix me up enough so I can fucking run away. Like, that is not a thing that a servant in in my mind, because I, you know, America. Yeah. That's not a thing that Nellie would, if if it was ever found out that Nellie helped Isabella, like, yeah. she would be killed, which is fucking horrible. Right. America sucks. Classism and racism suck. fuck slavery like the whole thing was just horrible but this is a lot and yeah so far so far i'm team nelly even though she has made some fucking 
horrible questionable decisions. decisions. Yes, yes. Great. And it it makes sense why she's made those questionable decisions because she's white. And I yep. that's that sounds horrible. She's privileged and it to be able to be do horrible. it. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. privileged enough to be able to make those bad she knows decisions. That, she knows that for a different type of servant, they wouldn't be able to do it. But because of the type of servant that she is, she'll probably be able to get away with it. Yep, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Ooh, and in fact, I'm heated. you're not I'm only- heated. This is a lot. <laughs> this is a yeah, lot. It's hard. Uh, so... In fact, when she does that, you know, she has to tell her master, obviously, Edgar, later that that happened. But he he's obviously upset that he didn't get to see his sister and help her. But he's also grateful to Nellie for being able to get her away. So a couple of years go by where Edgar is raising his baby girl, uh, and, you know, is doting on her. He's a really cute dad. Actually, in my opinion, I really should take this back because to be perfectly honest, Edgar is, I guess you can say he makes some questionable decisions, but they're only questionable and they're questionable at best, at best, like most of the rest of his decisions are pretty reasonable in my opinion. He's a pretty good dude. (laughs) He was a dick at the beginning for being an asshole to Heathcliff while, while Heathcliff was a servant, like treating your servants like shit or treating not even his servants but someone else's fucking servants like shit that's fucking horrible but you have to remember like he was the child who was being groomed essentially into that mentality you know and actually when he becomes older he treats his servants much better than the earnshaws ever did yeah honestly yeah well i mean and all his all his like anger towards Heathcliff makes sense like mm-hmm. if someone if some of the girl was clearly in love with Otis and you know making eyes or whatever and Otis was re- even slightly reciprocating that like I'd be fucking mad too like I'd oh kill a bitch God. so yes exactly so I, you know what I'm thinking like I feel Edgar on that on that point like he he stood and, his ground. and he didn't even do that at the beginning like for me yeah. the minute that that person set foot on my doorstep I'd have been like hi that's cute have fun with our dinner tonight because you ain't never seeing my wife again like, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like well, have fun with well, I mean right now I mean the biggest problem here is that Edgar fell in love with Catherine who was already in love with somebody else Mm-hmm. that that's the problem like yeah. don't give your heart to someone who can't give your heart who can't give their heart to you right well, that and, was Ed, that was Edgar's you have to think, mistake though, and then and then sure. it led to all of this bullshit to be fair though you you can say too that you know Catherine when Catherine was talking to Nellie earlier she also said that she loved Edgar and that she you know she did love him as a person and wanted to be with him but it just wasn't her ideal situation yeah her ideal situation was one that she couldn't have but it wasn't because it wasn't something that like oh she just didn't have any regard for edgar whatsoever you know what i'm saying Uh, it was classist hooray british literature yeah literally (laughs) 
literally. Uh, wow. wow. <laughs> you liked it. <laughs> As me and my husband have this thing where if one of us goes too far in the dad meme sort of category of any type of uh, humor, the response is you have to go outside. Yep. <laughs> Just leave. You have you have to you have to go outside now. Just sorry you're on a, you're on a, the... you're on a you're on a five minute timeout yes you are you are on a timeout uh, no liter literaturally is going to be one of the hashtags for this episode oh jesus oh my god and that's going to become you're... one of the things that's going to become yeah. one of our things that we say yeah. literally and literally oh my god i hate and love simultaneously <laughs> everything you about love it you love it <laughs> there's been years the child, the child is growing. The child okay. is growing. Okay, we got While a kid now. this child is growing, Isabella, because spoiler alert, when she ran off, she was pregnant with Heathcliff's baby. She wasn't as pregnant as Catherine was, BT dub, but she was no pregnant. one is. Because yeah. we know about it. Yeah. So she runs off and she's able to give birth to a son, Heathcliff's son. And she doesn't die in childbirth, thank Jesus. So she actually raises her own son for several years, but she does eventually die. Um, it's by natural causes, from what I remember. She's like 25. Yeah, she's pretty young to die. <laughs> uh, natural so causes. I say natural causes in a sense that like she's not murdered or like she doesn't, you know what I'm saying? Like oh, she, okay, okay, she okay. becomes ill so, like, somehow. Like an or illness. Something. Yeah, she got cancer or something Again, like that. It was something that was natural. Throwback to our other episodes, uh, probably syphilis. Yeah, right. Because it's syphilis. always syphilis. That shit killed or everybody. Yeah, or tuberculosis. <laughs> Could be either one. In that process, also, Hindley has also passed away, like I said. Uh, so Heathcliff is master of Wuthering Heights now, right? Isabella dies when her son is 12. She named her son Linton. Wow. The last name of her last name, basically. Her, her, uh, her birth last name. name. Yeah. So this is Linton. Uh, when she dies... He is, this kid is a little kind of like thin and sickly. So Edgar immediately goes to get him when his um, sister dies to bring him to live with them. Despite the fact that everyone pretty much knows that the minute that this happens, Heathcliff is going to get wind of it because he is the master now of Wuthering Heights and he's going to insist on having his own son, even though he's never met his own father because of course Isabella refused to let that happen. So they bring Linton to their house with Kathy, who is now also around Linton's age, like about 12 years old or something like that. They, you know, meet for one day, these two little kids. But Heathcliff comes and insists that he um, has his own son live with him. And Edgar cannot refuse this. It's just not legally viable for him to fight this in any way unfortunately so when Heathcliff takes Linton they're very upset because Kathy was very looking forward to like having Linton with them and like having a cousin and you know like being able to play with him and Edgar 
refuses to let her anywhere near Heathcliff, right? Uh, she's never so. met. He she doesn't even know Heathcliff exists, basically uh, at this point. Yeah. Understandably so, so. Yeah. So when Linton leaves, they have to kind of make up, you know, why Linton suddenly can't be here now, and it's kind of sad. Kathy is she doesn't understand, but she you know she's a child, so she doesn't really have any say in it. Uh, a couple of years go more go by. Nellie and her are like wandering around. She becomes kind of like an adventurous little girl. She's very like Catherine in her sense of adventure. Like she always wants to be like running around the lands and like going and playing games and all of that stuff. So a couple of years go by now after, and she <sighs> runs into Heathcliff on one of her like out skirmishes she goes out when she's not supposed to basically unfortunately because she doesn't understand the reason why Nellie and Edgar have like forced these limitations on the fact that like she's not allowed to go out and play in these areas of the land unless someone is with her and there's a reason behind that it's because they don't want her running into Heathcliff <laughs> you know what I'm saying yeah so she doesn't she's old enough now to where she doesn't understand these rules and because they won't explain them to her they obviously look like dumb rules so she has no qualms about just breaking them so she goes off and plays by herself in one of the uh, during one of these times when she shouldn't be and of course that is the one time that when she goes off she runs into Heathcliff and Heathcliff when he learns who she is is like hi Catherine and brings her to his house and introduces her to Linton and it's like you recognize Linton don't you you remember your cousin and she is just kind of like flabbergasted and is like oh my gosh so like you are my uncle basically like so you're Linton's dad like how long have you been here? Why have I never met you? And Heathcliff is like, oh, well, you know, it's because your dad has just like been kind of mean and not very, you know, he doesn't like me very much. I've always wanted to meet you, but you know, it's just, we abide by his rules. So, you know, yeah, but we're here and we'd love to have a relationship with you. Obviously, Catherine is like, what? What the fuck? So she Predator. is very much predatory. So she is very much like, yeah, I definitely want to have a relationship with my cousin, you know, like, and Linton, he's kind of ambivalent about meeting her, but he's very much like, you know, like, oh, yeah, I remember you and like, absolutely, I'd love to meet you. And she's a young woman, you know, she's not a woman at this point. She's still a child. She's, I don't know, like 15 or something like that, 15 or 16 or something. Yeah, but at that and time was a woman. Right. And so they're like, you know, so he's obviously like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, and by the way, Hareton Earnshaw is here too, just in case you forgot. He's like 20 or something like that. And even though he's an Earnshaw, he is kind of like a servant because like I said, remember Heathcliff didn't ever teach him anything, you know, didn't teach him manners and teach him shit. And they're like, oh, by the way, you know, Hareton's your cousin too, just so you know. <laughs> and this kind of like makes Catherine really distraught because she's like but he's a brute and Harriton is like bitch you're a brute like fuck you and it's this like this insane situation so when Nellie wouldn't you know Harrington, brings wouldn't Harrington be her uncle so because it's her dad's 
Because Harrington's dad was Catherine's dad, right? Harrington's dad was Catherine's brother. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. When Nellie brings, at first when they're there, Catherine is like, well, of course, we'll have a relationship now and everything will be grand. And, oh, I'm so happy. And Nellie's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll talk about it when we get home, (laughs) child, and brings her home and is now like, once they get her home, it's like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen sorry child but you're not having a relationship with them they're not good people and she you know doesn't understand this and goes to her father and you know is trying to demand that her father you know see reason because she thinks she knows what's going on because of course Heathcliff has told her and Edgar doesn't think it's necessary to explain to her like the intricacies Um, he's been a good enough dad to where he's like listen to me, you know, I would not be imposing these restrictions on you if it wasn't for your own good. And I'm, I, I cannot budge on this. You cannot be with them. They're just not good people. And so she loves her father. Catherine loves her father very much. So she knows when he says this, that she really should not be going against his wishes. But she's also 16 now and doesn't understand the intricacies. So she, oh my God, not intoxicated enough to be doing that. She doesn't understand the, you know, the particulars or the details because no one has told her. So she doesn't understand the stakes, you know, how high the stakes are for her to not listen to her father. So she agrees with her father and says, okay, you know, I'll follow your rules. I won't see them ever again. But on the down low, she continues writing with Linton. And uh, they develop a relationship through notes at first. And then Nellie catches her doing that. And then, you know, at first tries to make those notes stop. But then she starts sneaking out uh, in the middle of the night to see Linton. And so they're, now they're in love. It's sad. Linton is also getting very sick. Yeah, Linton is also getting very sick. Um, He's also very, uh, you can see his clear like health decline and he, um, it's mental as well as physical and Nellie can note it, but we're not really sure of why until later and you can guess why, but you're not really completely sure and narratively why until later. Um, Abuse. Yes. Uh, basically to to uh to uh, not mince words yes he's really really badly abused by Heathcliff um and the abuse is not physical in this sense Heathcliff got lots of his like physical abuse out like on Henley and stuff like that so he doesn't do that but he severely psychologically abuses his own son really bad like you're a dis you know no one is ever going to love you uh the only people who love you are me you know is me and you know Hareton your cousin and that's it the poor kid is 1000% Stockholm syndromes um out the yin yang for his dad so when they're developing this relationship Nellie is begrudgingly allowing it to happen because she can't figure out a way yet to stop it from happening without telling her master, Edgar. And she is actually afraid because Edgar is is old enough now at this point that she is worried 
um, he's, he's getting a little sickly and she's very worried that knowledge of this is going to send him into his deathbed, basically. So she's trying to figure out a way to remedy the situation without having to tell her master because she doesn't want to send him to, a, to his grave any earlier than he's already going to his grave. This is unfortunate because what it does is it allows, it allows Heathcliff essentially to scheme and what he does is he essentially eventually one time when they are meeting finagles it to them meeting at his house and he then essentially kidnaps her and nelly when nelly yes. comes to get her Catherine and nelly fuck yes yes and so they, like they they come and and they've been lured there by linton unfortunately because linton is absolutely uh brainwashed by his father that the only way any good of this is gonna you know he has to listen to his dad uh and what his dad says is the best and then when things happen the way his dad says and everything will be great he has kidnapped essentially Catherine and nelly at this point uh he locks nelly in a room and he has Catherine and linton forcibly married wow yeah he has this happen and then keeps her in the house because once she doesn't come home and it is clear that she's been kidnapped it does send edgar to his deathbed and edgar is now distraught beside himself after catherine and linton are married he lets nelly go but he of course keeps catherine kidnapped so nelly gets to come back and be there for her her master until the very night when they're very sure that he dies that he's going to die that night um nelly finally convinces heathcliff to let catherine come see her father before as as he's passing away basically but only because he says that's fine because when he does die the minute that he dies you're coming and living with me legally because that's what happens because uh you know linton is his son and he is the master of the entire neighborhood as the tenant of Wuthering Heights. And so, yeah, it's just all bad. So he lets Catherine go to see, let's, let's, such a nice guy, uh, go see her father as he's dying. Um, so she actually is very happy because that she gets to show him that, you know, she's okay so that he can die in peace, knowing that, you know, she's not harmed and all of that stuff. Uh, and he dies. It's very sad because Heathcliff is basically just standing in the parlor waiting and he's like, all right, get your shit. Let's go. And there's this moment. It's a wonderful moment where uh, she looks him dead in the eyes after um, she's gathered her stuff and she's ready. And she's like, you know, you think you've won something, basically, like you think that you have everything figured out. And I'm here to let you know that you don't own me. You never will. And if there is any way within my power to repay you for the absolute shit person that you are, I'll see to it and I will be your downfall and you can count on it. And yes. he kind of like looks at her kind of like the audacity of this child, but he also kind of looks at her in this way that you can see that he is in that moment seeing the resemblance to Catherine and seeing the like, you know, the the echo of her mother and so he hates her for saying this because how dare she 
but he is also grossly and strangely impressed by it and you know likes it so he takes her and she and her new husband linton live there he is becoming increasingly wild Heathcliff does when she is living over at Wuthering Heights with them. I mean, at one night, he reveals when Catherine, when his Catherine died, that night, apparently, he went to the night that she was, I'm sorry, the night that she was buried, he went to her grave and dug up her corpse and danced with it in the moonlight. What the actual fuck? Not normal not healthy lots of issues (laughs) let's just leave it at that he reveals that after this instance basically he has been plagued by Catherine's ghost just like he asked sadly Linton because I told you Linton was already becoming sickly before all of this shit happened and it's just getting worse Linton dies very soon after this too so now her husband that she was forced to marry is also dead and she is just forced to live here with Heathcliff and Hareton under his thumb and that is the household of which Lockwood walked into that day when he moved into T.C. Grange and then went to meet his landlord. Those are the people he met. He met Heathcliff and Kathy and Hareton. This is when... So Catherine was there when Lockwood was there? Yes. When he went, there was a young woman there. And he at first actually assumed that it was Heathcliff's wife. And she's like, no, absolutely the fuck not. I hate him. (laughs) And Heathcliff was like, yeah, no, she's not my wife. She's my daughter-in-law. And so, yeah, he meets her there and Heathcliff and Hareton. This is the point where Nellie's story ends because this is all she knows. So now we are back to the present and remember that Lockwood is technically our narrator. Lockwood by this time has recovered from his illness after Nellie has told the story. And Lockwood is like, fuck this place fuck these people maybe i don't want to live here anymore (laughs) and he's like i'm tired of this place and he leaves he's like i'm gonna go live back in the city for a while good choice for eight months good when he comes back (laughs) he he leaves for eight months he comes back after eight months because he's like he's like on his way somewhere else and he's like passing through the area so he's like oh man I wonder how Nellie is doing so he goes to try to find her he realizes he goes at first to T.C. Grange but Nellie's not there now she's back at Wuthering Heights not at T.C. Grange anymore so he's like oh why did that happen oh fuck so he goes to Wuthering Heights he finds Nellie there and he's like what's been what's been going on where's Heathcliff where's where everybody what's what's happening here and Nellie is like oh hey lots changed in the eight months since you've been gone and he's like yeah like what and she ends us by telling us that shortly after he left basically Heathcliff had been 
essentially hating his daughter-in-law and hating life in general and all of that stuff. Uh, but his daughter-in-law was always very, you know, petulant to him and not, you know, she doesn't take a shit in any of that stuff. And actually he is trying, he want, he w- he wants to treat her as badly as he treated everyone else in his life. But the unfortunate thing is that what he sees is that Harriton is smitten with Kathy, adores her, but he's a brute because he was raised by Heathcliff. So he's just doesn't really know at, especially at first, how to kind of like deal with those feelings. And he resents her because she at first treats him pretty rudely because she, you know, makes fun of the fact that he can't read and can't write and doesn't know a lot of words and all of that stuff. And he's embarrassed about that. So he resents her for that. But as she kind of, there's no one else for her to fucking hang out with now that her husband is gone. So now that they've been living together, she's like, oh, come on, don't hate me a little bit. Like, I'll teach you how to read and stuff. And they fall in love. They're falling in love, basically. Uh, Heathcliff does not want this whatsoever. He does not want Hareton uh, to be besmirched with goodness at whatsoever. He made him a brute on purpose, thank you very much, obviously. But as it is happening, it's not expressly said this in the narrative, but it's pretty obvious to the reader at this point that Heathcliff, he's older now. He's quite old for the time, I should say. And he starts talking to himself like he's talking to Catherine, his Catherine. And he's now having difficulties because he wants to, and he does to an extent, hate Kathy, little Kathy. But now that he's seeing her and Harrison fall in love, and now that he's living with her so he can see more and more of Catherine in her, He's seeing an echo of his and Catherine's relationship in Harriton's and Kathy's relationship. Once he makes that connection, it's almost like he now can't, even despite himself, he can't be mean to her anymore. And he actually like stops being as abusive. And so he starts making things to where as he's getting older he's setting up the affairs to where they will be okay and they will be left with all of you know the fortune that he has and everything and is essentially he kind of resigns himself basically to being like okay well you know what I've lived an asshole-ish enough of life as it is um I'll set my affairs in order and I'll just die I guess and go and um meet my own Catherine and so he kind of embraces his own madness sets everything up for them and then kind of willfully almost almost like as an act of will just passes away (laughs) to be in the afterlife with Catherine uh and leaving Harriton and Kathy with the estate um together so that they can be together and be free of him because when he realizes that he realizes suddenly that he is in the exact position that Hindley was in over him. And when he realizes that, it's almost this juxtaposition of he now is like, well, fuck, I, I have become the exact person that I spent my entire life being an evil person in order to get revenge on. And now I have become that exact same character in their lives. It took him so. murdering fucking three folks. And yeah. that's a fucking mess. It is a mess. It is a huge ass mess. But 
it happens. And, oh, and by the way, the way he does it is he goes on a hunger strike, just like his love. He just stops eating and he just stays in Catherine's old room and uh, dies. Kathy and Harriton are planning to marry now uh, and move into TC Grange when they do so that they no longer have to be in this house that has caused them so much pain. And uh, they're going to leave the Joseph, the oldest, craziest servant there to take care of Wuthering Heights by himself. We end with Nellie saying that now that Heathcliff is also dead, the locals in the neighborhood talk about seeing Catherine and Heathcliff's ghosts wandering the moors together at peace. They're like taking strolls with each other, like gentlemen and gentlewomen do. Um, Why? They hated each other. Their love was horrible so and bad. toxic as fuck but now they, I, they can be they together and death there they, is no classism i guess but they wouldn't be like strolling happy they'd be fucking arguing like you left the ghost <laughs> toilet seat up you piece of shit like they'd just be fighting <laughs> all the time truly they they were both petty as fuck that would mm-hmm. not be peaceful strolls petty people don't peacefully stroll together in life or death they'd just be fucking fighting there'd be all sorts of weird haunted shit happening in that town because of their horrible fucking fights all the time like oh that plate just flew across the room must be heathcliff and Catherine getting in a fight again like (laughs) (laughs) that is the end of weathering heights (laughs) that's a fucking mess this book was written by emily bronte one of the uh, well-known Bronte sisters. So the original text was published in 1847. There we go. Okay. Um, it was actually published in two parts because it was published together with her sister, Anne Bronte's Agnes Gray. So there were like, there was like a, this like three volume coupling of their stories the first two volumes were the story of Wuthering Heights and then Agnes Gray was the third that was 1847 excuse me and then in 1850 Charlotte Bronte um, edited the original text um, kind of correcting some punctuation and spelling issues um, and then republished it in its own singular edition early reviews of Wuthering Heights they were to be nice um they were mixed yeah lots of critics at the time recognized that the the novel was definitely powerful there's uh it's very creative they always uh laud the imagination of it but they were also very confused about the storyline, obviously, but they also were very confused about the characters. People were very put off by them. They were savage. They were selfish. They were, you know, vindictive, petty, all of those crazy things. And so people were kind of like, how, like, why has this story been written that is supposed to be a romance when everyone in it is a shitty person. So here are just some fun quotes on the uh, the perplexing nature of Wuthering Heights. Graham's Lady Magazine wrote, 
how a human being could have attempted such a book as the present without committing suicide before he had finished a dozen chapters is a mystery. There is a quote from the Douglas Gerald's Weekly newspaper that says, Wuthering Heights is a strange sort of book, baffling all regular criticism, yet it is impossible to begin and not finish it, and quite as impossible to lay it aside afterwards and say nothing about it. In Wuthering Heights, the reader is shocked, disgusted, almost sickened by details of cruelty, inhumanity, and the most diabolical hate and vengeance. And anon come passages of powerful testimony to the supreme power of love, even over demons in the human form. We strongly recommend all our readers who love novelty to get this story, for we can promise them that they never have read anything like it before. It is very puzzling and very interesting, and if we had space, we would willingly devote a little more time to the analysis of this remarkable story, but we must leave it to our readers to decide what sort of book it is. <laughs> Damn. New Monthly Magazine wrote, A Perfect Misanthropist's Heaven. Tate's Edinburgh Magazine wrote, This novel contains undoubtedly powerful writing, and yet it seems to be thrown away. Mr. Ellis Bell, who was the, this was the pseudonym at first of um, Emily Bronte. Mr. Ellis Bell, before constructing the novel, should have known that forced marriages under threats and in confinement are legal and parties instrumental thereto can be punished. And second, that wills made by young lady minors are invalid. The volumes are powerfully written records of wickedness and they have a moral. They show what Satan could do with the law of entail. The examiner wrote, this is a strange book. It is not without evidences of considerable power, but as a whole, it is wild, confused, disjointed, and improbable. <laughs> Yeah. I like I mentioned, this was originally published under a pseudonym as a man. It, the pseudonym was Ellis Bell. So this was all when people thought it was a man writing it. When they found out a woman wrote it, what? Woman? And this woman is not just writing, but she is writing awful things, such awful things that even men are like turned off by it and disgusted. I mean, it had exploding emojis for days basically i mean how dare um, you write things that are actually happening in our real world how <laughs> dare you tell us how men actually react to women how yeah. fucking dare you yeah so um emily bronte um was very influenced um i think pretty obviously to anyone who has any sort of like knowledge of sort of classical stuff She's very influenced by the gothic genre of novels. The Her influences are kind of myriad. So her father, like, allowed the Bronte sisters access to, because he read a lot of this type of stuff, they would read his stuff too. And so they would get to read periodicals, uh, Blackwood's Edinburgh Magazine and stuff like that. That was a major source of the daughter's kind of like information about society and social things and life. Sir Walter Scott, Lord Byron's poetry is happening around this time. Very kind of a classic Gothic uh, emo boy figure. 
from uh, 1833, Byronic Romanticism is very much a thing. Wuthering Heights kind of takes that whole aspect and just kind of transfers it into the Yorkshire Wars. Really makes Byronic sort of hero um, something of demonic in nature uh, when she creates Heathcliff as her sort of anti-hero almost. She also grew up on Greek tragedies and uh, she was a very good Latinist. So she had a lot of classical knowledge and used those types of tropes as well. She, you know, had also read Milton and Shakespeare. So there's echoes of that. As a whole, the Bronte sisters, because of course, if you are not aware, um, there's three of them that did writing. This is Emily Bronte. This is not Charlotte Bronte, who writes a very different romance in Jane Eyre. But uh, the Bronte sisters as a whole, they're very female Gothic. Uh, they often explore the um, the confines of like, being a woman basically in their day and age and like the being entrapped basically uh, in domesticism and patriarchy how sort of um you know transgressive and dangerous women's endeavors could be when they are trying to subvert and escape those types of situations there are some people that talk about Catherine as being like a gothic demon because she quote unquote um shape shifts in order to marry Edgar Linton in fact Catherine is always kind of lauded as um the worst character in this story and I just I really beg to differ uh to be perfectly like she's not good she's she's an awful person like make no mistake she's she's quite not good <laughs> just like Little lots of Catherine? people in this story uh, no, the 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 first Catherine. Catherine the first, the first. Catherine. Okay. Yeah, she's not great. No, she's awful. All. But I would not say that she is the chief most evil character in the novel. And I would not say that by far. And to me, the whole like fascination with Catherine and her ability to shape shift, like, no, you're just misogynistic. Like it, it, there's no shape shifting happening for her to like marry Edgar and, you know, become sort of domestic. Like that was just something that women had to fucking do. Uh, shape shifting, it, it's not, it's not fucking demonic or, or, you know, magical that she was able to kind of like play pretend at being, you know, more, you know, nice of a woman than she actually was that was just a reality of like life back then unfortunately Catherine is just more of a realistic depiction of humans in particular women humans back then I would say because life was just not great and there was a lot of suppression of very natural human tendencies and human emotions so yeah of course when you look at Catherine Earnshaw and her pettiness and her you know idiotic you know choices and stuff like that you're like oh fuck she's evil why did someone write a story about this but that's also kind of the point is that she's pretty she's not 
one of the heroines that is written about that is you know perfect and pristine and can never do any wrong and it's just such a tragedy that all of this stuff befalls on her she is a very solid believable sort of human that is just in it for herself and makes dumb decisions and you know is a product of her environment and I do say this is the old by the way this is the only credit I give Emily Bronte because I still hate this story but this is the only credit I give Emily Bronte is that she is in my opinion I think part of the reason of doing this was to show that all of these characters were very much a product of their environment that there could have been ways for these people to be better than they were but they were brought up in rigid systems and institutions that pounded into their brains really awful ideas of what how you should relate to other humans how you should view the opposite sex how you should view people who aren't white all of these things and so because of that they you know self-fulfill their own prophecies in a way and become the things that these systems and these institutionalized sort of morals enforced upon people you know that were just trying to live their normal human error-filled lives and wanted to you know be happy like fucking sue them you know what i'm saying there are film adaptations of wuthering heights the the earliest known one is uh 1920 it was in england directed by av bramble the most famous one is from 1939 uh, Lawrence Olivier starred in it. Merle Oberon starred in it. It was directed by William Wyler. It won the New York Films Critic uh, Circle Award for Best Film that year. It was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1939, that same year. Um, in I'm sure it lost to The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it lost. It did lose, um, but it was nominated. 1970, the first color version of the novel was adapted. There was a 1992 film, which uh, starred Ralph Fiennes, which, I mean, damn, if I was ever going to watch one of these, which I'm not interested in ever, but if I was, I'd watch the Fiennes one because (laughs) I don't know if you know, but Ralph Fiennes is Fiennes. Just FYI. Mm, Question mark. Listen, just because too many children first saw Ralph Fiennes as Lord Voldemort doesn't mean that when he is not created as a demon, <laughs> that he is not fine AF. Okay, I will die on this hill. I love Ralph Fiennes. The reason that the Ralph Fiennes one is particularly remembered was because most often the, the, the film adaptations just left off the ending part. Like it just kind of ends when Catherine dies and that's it. When Catherine dies, that was like yeah. a third of the way through. What the fuck? Lots of people just just cut that shit straight out. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What but the uh, hell? but this one didn't. And so that one is pretty notable. 2009, there was a two-part drama series. Tom Hardy was in it, Charlotte Riley, uh, Sarah Lancashire, Andrew Lincoln. There was a graphic novel that happened in like 2011. <laughs> Who needs this as a graphic novel? This is literally 
man abusing everyone in his life like that's not necessary all coming back to me now by jim steinman apparently he says that he wrote that 1989 song while under the influence of wuthering heights (laughs) and that it was a song about quote being enslaved and obsessed by love and he compared it to Heathcliff digging up Kathy's corpse and dancing with it in the cold moonlight which just puts a strange tinge to that song that I did not did not ask for and do not appreciate and now I cannot get rid of (laughs) just a little bit about Emily Bronte she was born in uh, on July 30th, 1818. She died on December 19th, 1848. She's, She's only 30? Yeah. Holy yeah. fuck. What a disappointment so, I have been. Well, <laughs> God damn. Well, well, I mean, her. she's best known literally only for Wuthering Heights. Um, <laughs> Still, uh, she wrote a novel that they've just yeah. beat to death. over and over and over again about essentially just fucking abuse like that's insane yeah she was pretty young um she is known mostly only for Wuthering Heights uh she also put out a book of poetry obviously with her sister Charlotte and Anne they all used when they were you know, initially writing, they weren't writing under their own names. They all used pseudonyms and they were pseudonyms that were all brothers um, with the same last name. And they just had names that coincided with the first letter of their names. So Charlotte was Currer, C-U-R-R-E-R. What the Uh, fuck? Yeah. Emily was Ellis and then Anne was Acton. And then their last name was Bell. What so. trash names are these? Uh. Acton and Curran? <laughs> like you you couldn't just come up with like Aaron and Chris? Come, yeah. come the fuck on. They're part Irish. They had an Irish father, Patrick Bronte. Emily was the second youngest. They, there were technically six siblings. Uh, so the, it goes Maria, Elizabeth, Charlotte, Bronwell, and then Emily and Anne. Those are the the kids. They moved right after on Anne, excuse me, was uh, born to Haworth. When Emily was three, their mother dies uh, of cancer on September 15th, 1821. Uh, so they were cared for after that by um, Elizabeth Bronwell, who was their mother's sister, their aunt. So Maria, Elizabeth, and Charlotte, Emily's three eldest sisters, were sent to um, school. Emily joined them in uh, November of 1824, but it was only for a brief period. Um, They all, when they were there, unfortunately suffered abuse. um, And then there was a huge typhoid epidemic uh, throughout the school, Mary Mary Maria, excuse me, and Elizabeth became very ill. Maria actually probably had tuberculosis and not typhoid. Um, She was sent home and she died, unfortunately, shortly after that. Emily, uh, Charlotte, and Elizabeth were then subsequently removed from that school in June of 1825. And then, unfortunately, Elizabeth died uh, soon after that return. Uh, At this point, all under 10 years old. So now they have lost their mother and their two eldest 
siblings in their immediate family. Their father removed Charlotte and Emily from school altogether at this point. They, um, he educated them all um, at home by after this with uh, Elizabeth Bronwell, the aunt. And so Emily, she was very obviously close to her siblings. Um, she was known as a great animal lover. Uh, she really loved in particular befriending um, stray dogs that were would be wandering around. Uh, she lacked a formal education, but like I said earlier, they she and her siblings had access to lots of published material through their father um, because he, you know, was he liked to read stuff, basically. So they would get to read all of the stuff that he had around the house. When she was 17, Emily attended the Rowhead Girls School. Uh, Charlotte was a teacher there. Emily, unfortunately, when she went there, she, she became really, really homesick. Uh, so she just left after a few months. And then she became a teacher at Law Hill School in Halifax in 1838. She was 20. But she, as you can tell by now, she's been kind of a sickly child ever since she, uh, they were young and had that huge epidemic that like raged through their original school. So, um, you know, she was working 17 hour work days basically. Uh, and she returned home in April of the next year. So only a couple of months, unfortunately. In 1842, Emily went with Charlotte um, to Belgium. They attended a girls academy there run by Constantine uh, Heger. So, Heger seems to have been really fond of the Bronte sisters and in particular was um, impressed by Emily. Uh, she is quoted to have saying that she could have been a man, which is just, my God, such a compliment. Wow. Why she could have been a man. Oh, man. She, uh, quote, had powerful reason that would have deduced new spheres of discovery from the knowledge of old and that she had a head for logic and a capability of argument that was unusual uh, and then 1844 the sisters attempted to open their own school uh, they tried to do this in their own house um, <laughs> they couldn't attract basically enough students to their house because they kind of lived in a remote area basically so that failed uh, and then in 1846 they published their poems all together charlotte contributed 19 emily and anne each contributed 21. there's really limited information on emily bronte outside of this stuff uh she was really really reclusive she was just uh, kind of a shy person she had a few friends from when she lived in Belgium, but otherwise didn't really have a lot of friends outside of her family and her siblings in particular. Um, her actually closest friend was Anne, it is um, noted to say. Uh, and Charlotte Bronte remains essentially the, the biggest, um, most primary source of our information <laughs> about Emily Bronte. So the water in the area, in the land, it was contaminated because the water was essentially coming from a runoff from their local church's graveyard. So they were just drinking corpse water all the time. Basically. What? Yeah. Yeah. Not that great. Uh, so, Not that uh, great. That's fucking atrocious. 
Yeah. Uh, so her brother, Bronwell, died very suddenly in September of 1848. A week after he died, Emily, at his funeral, caught a cold. It led to inflammation in her lungs, which led to tuberculosis. And uh, although it was very, very bad, she rejected medical treatment. And uh, she did not want any sort of doctor anywhere near her, basically. So she does not live longer than uh, three months. She dies in uh, sort of middle to late December of that year. And so she was interred in her family vaults in Haworth. And that is the end of my notes, which means we have come to the end of talking about Emily Bronte and therefore Wuthering Heights. I mean, the story of Wuthering Heights and the death of Catherine makes a lot more sense when you talk about the death of Emily Bronte. Like, I died of a broken heart. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, you died because you fucking starved yourself. What? That? (laughs) Why is this taught? You can't say shit like that when I have liquid in my mouth. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try to turn off the funny. The funny. <laughs> uh, but like, why the fuck? Why? Yeah. Why? Why do we? Why do we learn about that? I'm assuming. I like. I know. I never had to read this, but I know that people did have to read this at some point in school, and I don't understand why. What is the purpose of this? Because it's literally just a fucking sad. To be shit perfectly show. honest. So I'll, I'll just kind of briefly kind of describe my thing and then I really don't want to take up too much more time because we should move on to talking about a movie. But um, in my honest opinion, I think that, so she gives a lot of um, dialogue choices to Catherine and Heathcliff when they're describing like their feelings for each other. They are some pretty iconic lines um, that lots of people have, turn to uh as kind of talking about the power and like the the raw sort of like destructive all-encompassing you know energy of what like love really is and they're great quotes they're they're very good those parts in particular are written very well you know what i'm saying uh, yeah i think the the problem here is that people took those quotes and and they sort of build behind those quotes what story they are have essentially convinced themselves Emily was trying to portray when in actual reality Bronte the the actual narrative is focused much more on all of the crazy awful shit that they're all doing to each other like for all of the events that are packed into it, if you look, this is how thin the book is. It's not that long, yeah. really. Uh, I mean, compared to Jane Eyre, uh, her sister's novel, not that long, really. And it, there is a lot of events that happen in the story. The story spans generations. And the events that happen in it get far more attention than the actual love between Catherine and Heathcliff ever does. Uh, you know, 
me telling you it was me telling you the events of the book. And that's actually like nine tenths of why to you it makes no sense that people laud it. But remember when I said the people who made adaptations of this cut out two thirds of the book and focused solely on the first third of it between Catherine and Heathcliff and their love. And they read into a lot of the dynamics between Catherine and Heathcliff that are textually just not there. I mean, point blank. They're not present there. You can, you can fill those in for yourself all you want, but it's, you know, to use a fandom term, it's headcanon at this point. It's not actually textually canon because other than those quotes that she gives us for those characters, we don't have a huge focus on, you know, the inner turmoils of Heathcliff and Catherine with each other. There really isn't. It's not there in the actual book. But people took those best parts really of the book, those sort of iconic lines that are really evocative and great lines, admittedly, and they sort of ran with it and then kind of created almost this like, glamorized and, and sort of reimagined version of what people wanted to be thinking had happened between these two to make them so awful. And on the one hand, great, that's awesome. But on the other hand, that's not the story that Emily Bronte told. <laughs> so yeah. like, it's fine that you like wanted to write that, but call it fan fiction like it clearly is because it ain't yeah. actually part of the canon is all I'm gonna say yeah on that subject yeah and that is that really hits like the like I kept talking in the er, in earlier like why it's so hard for me to describe why I hate the book and it's not because I hate it in terms of like it's a it's a bad book it's not that it's a bad book it's just not a romance it's not the it's not the story that everyone talks about when they refer to Wuthering Heights when you say Wuthering Heights you think of Gone with the Wind type romances, Romeo and Juliet and Pride and Prejudice type of romances. And that that's not what this book is. That is not what this book is. And people who know what, you know, reference Wuthering Heights do not actually know that. And they are not often actually referencing the real story. And that bothers me. It bothers me to my core. Because if you read the real story, there's a lot more that you could delve into that, in my opinion, Bronte is shining a huger light on than we should that we should actually be talking about the the fact that Heathcliff is an evil evil anti-hero and he's Romany and like the the just astounding racism associated with creating your anti-hero to be the hero that oh your one of your heroines was in love with but he's also the most evil character of your entire story yeah and why you know that is that, you know, the classism discussions that we were having all throughout it with regards to Nellie and her actions and how the, fa the fact that she is a really shitty fucking servant and makes very questionable decisions yeah. because she is operating on moral sort of ideas of what women should act like and therefore essentially is probably the reason that her own mistress dies because she if she had told Edgar sooner 
then her pregnant mistress would probably not have gotten so ill that she would have died in childbirth. Like that shit, we can sink into that shit. Why don't we sink into that shit? And the answer is because you guys decided that you really wanted to romanticize the two white people that are awful ass people. That is only a third of portion of the book. And I have a problem with that. And that's why it pisses me off. I agree. Every single person, (laughs) every single person in this fucking story was a piece of shit. Maybe except for Edgar and little Catherine, like the the two children at the very end. But the idea that the only bad guy in this story was uh, the Romany character, Heathcliff, and not any of the fucking British characters... Catherine. That forced a lot of his circumstances on him. They create him to be an evil dude because they abuse the shit out of him his entire life. Yeah, yeah. You know That's what I'm saying? Fucking atrocious. Like this, this story does not deserve to be remembered as anything a other. Romance. It's exactly. definitely not a romance. It's not a romance. That is it's not my a romance. There's thing. There's not romance there. I don't understand how this was ever categorized as romance. Like. The very beginning of the story, Heathcliff and Catherine fall in love as like children and grow up together. And okay, sure. Like the first 20 minutes of this book are kind of romantic. Like they grew up together, years go by, they're falling in love, whatever. Um, And then they hit the, the breaking point, which is the classism because Victorian literature, that's just where it is. Uh, Heathcliff was of a lower class and could not hope to marry Catherine and Catherine couldn't bring herself to marry him because it would just ruin her because reputation fucking matters I guess and that's it she goes off and marries somebody else and then from that point on they're just fucking horrible to each other that's not a romance that's it that wasn't a fucking romance there was no like oh, I met him on a balcony during a right. snowstorm and then he whisked me away to Paris and we had this whirlwind love affair and then all this crazy, beautiful things happened and then we didn't see each other for 10 years and then we came back together and we were in love. Like, none of that. That's that's a fucking romance. What happened right. here was, was not. classism and horrible, horrible, horrible people. People. And that's also why I simultaneously say that, like, that, like, I begrudgingly also appreciate how Emily Bronte wrote it. Because, like I said earlier, all of these people are products of their circumstances. They're real ass people. Catherine oh, for sure is they not, are. They're, Catherine is not a heroine that, you know, Elizabeth, uh, you know, Bennett is or, you know, that any of the other heroines of romance are. She is an awful person who falls in love with a dude and their who circumstances also keep awful. them apart and their yeah. circumstances keep them apart and so rather than being written by Emily Bronte as these tragic lovers that were you know pristine and awful and never do anything wrong and so it's just such a tragedy that they never get together despite you know loving each other so purely no that wasn't what she wrote she wrote a very real love story where they loved each other but they were also awful people and so their love was awful and so the circumstances surrounding them made everything else around them awful in their lives and it spread throughout everyone surrounding them because 
these were the circumstances that were surrounding people in that time. And this is a realistic story for that time. And I think that that's why it pisses me off so much that people shy away from the majority of the story that Emily Bronte actually wrote to only solely focus on these two characters and the fact they were in love and kind of romanticize it and like spin this fantasy on it that doesn't actually exist you know I I understand this book being like immortalized essentially and continually read because some serious shit did go down and there's a lot of this would be a great story to teach children about mental health and and abusive relationships and things like that like this this is an excellent teaching tool but it needs to be recategorized and taken and the and the romance category needs to be taken completely away completely off the table because this is this has nothing to do with romance there was no no romance there was two two kids that kind of fell in love with each other and then when they couldn't be together acted like petty assholes to each other for years until they died to be perfectly honest in my opinion emily bronte wrote a horror story and instead of writing it like mary shelley wrote it she just wrote it with real people you know what i'm saying and because she did that it wasn't recognized because the people of her time were in those circumstances themselves and therefore obtuse and unwilling to recognize the evilness that they were themselves kind of breeding in their own social mores and institutions. So they instead had to romanticize any aspects of it that they could in order to kind of ignore the problematic aspects that it shone a light on about their own society. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. My mom is calling me. Give me a second. Okay, go ahead. What are you doing? Can you hear me? Yep. Mom, listen yeah, okay. really quickly. Okay. Katie, say something. Hi. Hello. Hi, Aunt Sandy. Can you hear Katie? No. Well, you can only hear me. Sorry. But I am currently Zooming with <laughs> Katie as well. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, no, no, it's totally fine. Do. We're, we're uh, recording a Hi. podcast right now. Oh, sorry. You're fine. Okay. I love you. Katie, Katie, Katie. Okay, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. I love Bye you too. Have a, good, have a good podcast. Bye. Bye. I can't even talk. Okay, I wish you girls were a little again. Bye. 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 So to flip that on its head and get rid of all the ideas of abusive relationships and trash, quote unquote, romance, I'm going to lead everyone into what I consider to be an actual romance. And it's one of the cutest romances to come out of the 1990s. And it is 1997's Brendan Fraser and Alicia Silverstone classic Blast from the Past. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> I'm my heart just like just in just it actually like invaded and like filled my lungs. There's no other organ up here except my heart. That's how big it just became. I remember so little about this movie, but what I do remember 
is because of the fact that like we watched it just over and over when we were kids yep. and yeah I love this movie so much yes this movie I'm so happy Uh-oh. so this movie was touted when we were kids as being just this wonderful like romp to the past and all these different things and it was that for sure I made my way to this film because of my love for Brendan Fraser and he was a huge star in the early 90s um I love him for I love Brendan Fraser I love I love him for for so many roles but as a kid, I was absolutely in love with Encino Man and George to the ju- George of the George Jungle. Of the Jungle. Those, those mummy. two. Yeah, later he would go on to be in the mummy. But 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 after <clears throat> but in 1997, he starred in this film called Blast from the Past. And it starred him and Alicia Silverstone were the romantic leads. And Alicia Silverstone, for those of you who somehow weren't alive in the 90s or just escaped the 90s. She, <laughs> she was, was everywhere. Also one of my favorite stars from the 90s because she was Cher from Clueless. And which is literal literally my favorite movie of all time. Literally my number one. I've always known it ever since I was a child. And it makes no sense because I love so many movies, but it has never been usurped and it never will be usurped. And I could probably quote the entire movie to you guys right now. Uh, Alicia Silverstone, after this movie, also went on, or after Clueless, went on to star in this movie, Blast from the Past. She made her way into Batman and Robin. She ended up being Batgirl alongside George Clooney oh, and yeah, Chris O'Donnell. That's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, she voiced Braceface, which is just fucking incredible. And then nowadays, she is the mom on the Netflix version of The Babysitter's Club. And she's fucking great. Really? I did yeah. not know that. Oh my God, I gotta Solid. watch it. Solid. She's the main girl, like okay. the girl who starts the club. She's the mom and she's fucking, it's solid. I love her. I okay. love Alicia Silverstone. Um, Brendan Fraser went on to have an incredible career. You know, he starred in Encino Man, of course. He went and did uh, Bones a bunch was in of other things. But I can't yeah. remember when it was. He was like in Bedazzled and The Mummy and Blast from the Past, of course. And uh, All the things. He, he had, you know, some really sad things happen to him and ended up leaving Hollywood for a really long time because sexual abuse is never okay. I don't give a fuck it's if you. I don't give a fuck if it's a man or a woman. Sexual abuse is inappropriate and horrible. And anyone who sexually abuses another human being deserves to be fucking locked up. Fuck what you. happened to Brendan Fraser is literally a travesty. He was one of the sweetest, purest people in Hollywood. And yes. it like I am actually like I joked about crying, but anytime people bring up what happened to Brendan Fraser, I do legitimately start crying and yeah. I have to stop talking about it. <laughs> yes. Uh so he has been mostly absent from film for 15 20 years or so uh this all this sexual abuse stuff happened 
in the early 2000s and he was right like when he fuck it a huge star right yeah. when he was huge and he was like you know what this is bullshit fuck it i'm out nah. i'm gone and it he took care it of has, himself before yeah, he took care and, of his career mm-hmm. yeah and it has taken up until now like just now 2020 2021 where brendan fraser's like yeah like i'll be in a film again like i love right. acting i'll do it again and i've you know he's had time to I mean, I guess heal, you can't really ever heal properly from that kind of thing. Right, that kind but of I mean, the, but the level of PTSD he must have dealt with yeah. just even considering starting to act again. And, yeah. you know, the fact that it he's doing it even now is just admirable because I could yeah. not even fathom. No, I will, I will watch any film that he's in. I don't care if it's like garbage yes like tooth fairy level crap i don't even care i love brendan fraser and he's fucking great yes uh you can fight me on that brendan fraser appreciation podcast uh haters i don't care uh there's the door yes uh (laughs) also in this movie playing brendan fraser's parents are sissy spacek known as uh the original carrie who you know that's a big deal on our horror podcast and she was also in Contact, which was a big movie when we were kids that we loved. And then her, his dad is played by Christopher Walken, who, <laughs> if somehow you don't know who Christopher Walken is, they're how? They're mixed feelings. Yeah. First of all, how? how? Second of all, I'm glad. But also third of all, I'm sad because there's some joy that Christopher Walken brings in our he, lives. Yes, Nostalgia. he is. If there was ever an actor who didn't know what projects were good or bad, it's, <laughs> it's Christopher, Christopher Walken. Walken. Like, if you sat down and just scrolled his IMDb page, you're going to be like, wow, that was a masterpiece. Oh, that was a masterpiece. Oh, no. That was utter trash. And that was trash. <laughs> and that was trash. And then that yes. was a masterpiece. And then that was trash. Right. And then, like, for days. There's honestly, days. in my opinion, like his whole like cinematography, there is no in between. He was never in one of those like projects where it was like, yeah, that was all right. You know, like it was a movie, you know, no. it wasn't great. It wasn't all- it, no, his he is literally is always great. either in something that is amazing or is just oh shit, just don't touch it. Horrible. Don't- yes, <laughs> it's exactly. fine. You can just forget about and- it. <laughs> And even now in his later age, he is still taking on questionable projects. So in 2007, he did one of my all-time favorite movie musicals that ever exists. He was the father in Hairspray. And he was- He was really good in Hairspray. He was absolutely wonderful. Oh, he was so good. And some producer type people saw him that he could sing, found out he could sing in Hairspray and saw that he could dance. And were like, you know what? We're going to put you in another musical. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to be fucking Captain Hook in this live musical Peter Pan. And you know what was horrible? That live action Peter Pan where he was Captain Hook. It was fucking atrocious. So like I said, Christopher Walken, he's great or horrible. There's no like, He's right the fact in the middle. That you're referencing something that happened after 2007 that A was a musical and B had Christopher Walken as a starring role in it that I 
have not ever heard about, much less watched, that tells you something about how bad it was. <laughs> because yeah. if it was musical and or if it had Christopher Walken in it, I should absolutely know it, particularly if I am an adult, which past 2007 I am. That tells you everything you need to know about that. The fact that I had no idea this existed until this moment in my life. Okay, so Blast from the Past. So this movie was made in 1997. Uh, this movie is fucking great. <laughs> sorry, I'm if, so sorry. If you have not seen this film, you need to go stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast. Go watch this movie and then come back and listen to what I've got to say about it. Because seriously, it's a must-see. Like, it's so fucking good. And it's such it's so a cute romance like the way that the yes. love develops in this story is fucking adorable from what i remember there's not a lot of problematic shit in this from what i oh remember, no it's not at pure, all it's it's pretty just good romping fun yes okay so this story starts off in 1962 we are at the home of the webbers played by sissy spacek and christopher walken they are a married couple sissy spacek Mrs. Weber is incredibly pregnant. She's probably eight <laughs> and a half, nine months about. And they are hosting an, a giant dinner party where just there's like 50 people in their house. It's insanity. There's so many fucking people. As it kind of, as the camera kind of peruses through the crowd, you're catching these little glimpses at different people's conversations about what's going on and in the world and with the Webbers and you find out that Mr. Weber is this genius who worked at Caltech for a really long time but left his job uh, because he just was kind of off the deep end a little bit he's a little bit kooky and no one could really quite figure out why um, mad but scientist vibes yeah he's got like these mad scientist vibes and everyone in the party like all the different people that you that the camera pans to in the party is kind of all gossiping about Mr. Weber talking about you know oh he's a little bit nuts you know he spends all his time in the backyard like down in the shed and the neighbors are discussing it it's the the talk of the party basically everyone kind of throwing yeah. shade at the host of the party which is fucking bullshit let me tell you all those friends are fake <laughs> as fuck it's also sadly probably very common but yes yeah but they're but they're all kind of discussing how odd it is how odd mr weber is and how he is kind of has become a recluse and he hangs out in his yard and he is very He's very cheery and happy in like the dinner sense. He like fits in to this dinner party very well, but you know, you can kind of tell there's something going on. And it, the conversations that you overhear kind of allude to the fact that maybe the FBI or the CIA is kind of watching him because of the things <laughs> that he has, that he is doing. Cause he's mm -hmm. kind of like gone off the grid or whatever. And no one kind of really knows what's going on with him. So they're sitting at this dinner party and they're, they're, everyone's talking and this man comes in, like a friend comes into the dinner party and like shouts through the bustle of the party and is like, uh, Mr. Weber, JFK is going to talk and he's going to call out the Russians right now on television. Like we need to talk about it or we need to watch it. 
So the party basically stops. They all go into the living room and they turn on, you know, their tiny little TV because it's 1962 and they watch JFK give an address where he is discussing the beginnings of, or what would be, I guess, the end of the cold war. He's talking about starting the war officially with Russia. He's like, dude, if Mm. you don't fucking stand down, like we're going to fight. The United States is not playing around. You better figure it the fuck out. And when this happens, after, right after JFK says this, Mr. Weber is panicking and he's like, oh, fuck, like it's happening. The Cold War is about to start for real. We're about to have nuclear fallout. I think everyone should go home, be with your families, you know, think about what's happening in the world you know, pray for good things or whatever. And he is like, shoes everybody out of the house. So everyone leaves the party. And as everyone's leaving, it's like, well, that guy's, that guy's kind of a nut job. Like he's, he's worried <laughs> about this cold war. Like, it's not that big of a deal. When in reality, like it could say, have like, been to be a horribly honest. Deal. It was, it was a very big deal. And the fact that nobody was really understanding how big of a deal it fucking was is just bonkers but yeah so as soon as everyone has left mr weber shuts all of the doors to his house he ushers his wife into the backyard into their shed and she's carrying like a fucking pot roast in a pan and like biscuits she's like i can't let my food go to bad like i we had this big party and all this stuff she's concerned Because it's the 60s and that's like her job. She's in, she's nine months pregnant and wearing fucking heels and a dress and like carrying around this pot roast concerned that people aren't eating it. Like it's very, very like I love Lucy era. Yeah. Yeah. So they go into the backyard and he opens up the latch to this fallout shelter that he has been building and he forces not forces he's not ever mean about it but he has his wife go down into the fallout shelter and he follows her and he shuts it now while they're going down into the thing we're getting cut scenes of this fighter jet that is doing like routine flights Mm -hmm. across like over los angeles they're just doing practice runs getting ready for whatever might happen in the cold war right So they're doing practice runs and this jet, like we see its engine spark. And then we hear a conversation from the jet pilot, like something's wrong. Like I'm going down. This shit's going to be bad. Right? So Mr. and Mrs. Weber get down into their fallout shelter and they're just about to shut the door when this jet that we've been seeing crashes onto their house and causes this big explosion, this like earthquake type thing. We see flames like where they're about to shut the door, we see oh flames and then Mr. and Mrs. Weber are like, oh shit, basically. And they shut it's the door. It's happening. Yeah. It's happening. The Cold War has started and they shut the door and they lock it. And Mr. Weber sets the lock for 35 years because supposedly the half-life of a nuclear fallout would be 30 years and the five years are just like extra caution. Like to be yeah to be ex to be extra cautious make sure everything's safe when they finally do go back up to the surface so they just don't instantly right. die of radiation poisoning right fair choices right so he was a little psychotic about the start of the cold war and he created this bomb shelter after they shut the door and he sets the locks they turn into the shelter and you see the magnificence <clears throat> 
that is this fallout shelter that he has created. He has essentially made this ginormous fallout shelter that is a near replica of their actual house, except for like a root, like a ceiling. It doesn't have a ceiling because it's fucking underground. So it's just got like cooling pipes and heating pipes and things like that. But it's got like this big hydroponic garden. He's got shelves and shelves of like 35 years worth of food that he's been like building up. He's got books and he's got a full kitchen and like a full living room and TV and all this stuff. He's, he has... The reason why everyone thinks he's crazy, the reason why everyone thinks he's fucking nuts is because he's literally a doomsday prepper who has prepped for 35 years underground. Like he's ready to sit there for 35 years underground. As he's explaining the details of the shelter to his wife and how long they're going to be down there, she kind of panics and it sends her into labor. Oh, shit. They have their son. And rightfully, they name their son Adam, as he will be the first, the first man to come out of this nuclear fallout. Right. So the next 20 minutes or so of the film is a montage of what's happening over the course of the 35 years underground. We get to see adam go from a newborn baby to a young kid in school taking lessons from his parents we get to see him you know learning how to box with his dad and learning how to dance with his mom and all of these like gentlemanly lessons that he would have gotten as at regular school as a child in the 60s but you know normal kids weren't getting anymore because it wasn't the 60s anymore right so we see all this happening and him growing into a man. And while that's happening, we're also getting bits and pieces of what's happening up top on the normal the surface, real world on, yeah. in the real world on the surface level. So the day that the mom goes into labor and that Adam is born, that's basically that same night, we see FBI agents talking on the property where the plane crashed, talking about what happened. They're discussing the fact that the jet crashed and what's wrong with the jet. They're talking about Mr. Weber and how he was eccentric and kind of on like an FBI watch list and how he was gathering all these materials and no one really knew why. But it is mentioned that Mr. and Mrs. Weber had died in the crash. It would, They were presumed dead at the time of the jet crash. So, yeah, of course. Makes sense. So their property is basically up for grabs. It doesn't belong to anybody at this point because the owners are both dead and they didn't have any surviving children because Adam right. hadn't been born she yet. He had not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> they're presumed dead. We find out that their house was destroyed by an airplane. It jumps ahead to, I don't know, 10 years in the future or something like that, a little bit in the future. Adam's a little kid running around the bunker trying to figure out how to do the world. And the lot where his house used to be or where their house used to be is bought up by a character named Mama. And she's going to put in a diner. So she builds a diner called Mama's Diner. 
And the next time it jumps ahead, we see her diner fully functioning. She's got her son working there. It's like a malt shop, like a 50s malt shop. And it's adorable. This is like the late 60s. Yeah. And then it jumps ahead again. We've got the 70s, the late 70s. Everyone's kind of, it's switched to like the disco era. The mom and the son aren't like big fans. The mom's not a big fan of the disco era customers and how things have kind of changed because she's very much living in the like 50s, 60s are the best era. But the kid's kind of starting to embrace it. And then it jumps ahead, you know, 80s. We get a little bit of the 80s and he buys it from his mom or his mom gives him the diner and he switches it to a bar. So it changes hands from mama's diner to become his bar. And then it jumps ahead again. And the final jump, we see it's Adam's 35th birthday. So he celebrates his 35th birthday in the bunker and he wish makes his wish where he wishes for a wife, which is adorable. It Then it flips back to the son or the bar owner. And it's 1997 at this point, And his bar is just in shambles. He is, you know, like an alcoholic and uh, a drug addict and all these different things. And he's just living in the shell of what once was the beautiful mama's diner. They go to bed. Everyone goes to bed the end of the night. In the middle of the night, at some point, the locks open because it's officially been 35 years. And they all wake up to the sound of the locks opening. So the family is like, oh, shit. Like, it's time to get out of this Forgot. bunker. Let's let's go see what's going on <clears throat> on the surface. Let's make sure that it's habitable. Like, let's find out what the world is like. The dad puts on a hazmat suit and he takes the lift up to the surface. Now, the surface opens up and destroys the floor of Mama's Diner, of this bar. <laughs> That's great. And, and he pops up into this bar where the owner of the bar, Mama's son, sees him come out and is just shook yeah wt like remember he's a drug addict and an alcoholic so he sees <laughs> am i on things, a trip did i overdose what is happening right now he's freaking the fuck out so christopher walken comes up out of this thing he's wearing a hazmat suit is just like okay like i gotta i gotta go and, <laughs> and <laughs> And the guy's just standing there like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> so Christopher Walken walks out of the, walks out of mama's diner and onto the street. And he takes off his helmet because the air is breathable, of course, because it's just it fucking not LA. Been actually, it, yeah, nuclear yeah. war this whole time. But he doesn't know that. So he starts to walk down this street in downtown LA and... You know, he goes down the street. He There's an adult bookstore right next door to Mama's Diner because it's downtown LA. And he's like, well, the yeah, fuck? For, that's, for sure. That's yeah. <laughs> he's, he's noticing all these different people in the streets because it's the middle of the night in downtown LA. So he sees people like homeless folks or like homeless folks throwing up or digging through the trash cans. He sees drunk people coming out of bars and throwing up in the gutter. He sees a trans or not a trans, a 
he sees a crossdresser, mm. like streetwalker, basically, who asks him for a light. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've got a lighter. Like, because that was the norm in the 60s. You always carry a lighter on you. And he lights this woman's cigarette. And this woman's cigarette basically, pro- or this woman prostitutes herself to him. Oh, and wow. this and this scares him so much that he's like i gotta get the fuck back to this bunker like <laughs> shit oh god shit is insane wow. yeah so he sees a fucking drag queen and is like nope this is the most i can't this is too to much be perfectly me. honest for 1997 it's it's I, I appreciate how like on point the representation of being in <laughs> LA would be. Uh yeah, as someone who lived in She was LA, also she was also black. That was like nice incredible representation. Like, so for yes. him him was he was probably just flabber fucking gasted. He but was yeah, shook. definitely very real. And if anyone has any doubt about the whole adult uh uh book store thing as someone who lived in LA uh for a year I had a friend who worked in an adult shop as his uh little part-time job when I first started going to college quite normal in LA definitely not um strange by any stretch of the imagination they were not making it like fantastical or something yeah very normal for modern day LA but very different for a man who grew up in what was suburban LA circa 1960 so he runs back to the bunker and he's just shook as fuck he gets down in there and he starts talking to Adam and his wife and he's discussing the things that he saw he's like yeah they're like the fallout has caused mutants and people are throwing up in the streets and they're eating out of trash cans and I and he forces Adam to put his hands over his ears and hum while he tells his wife that he was solicited by a male dressed as a female prostitute and it's just like overwhelming to them like the the culture shock the shell shock is insane for in this moment and Christopher Walken and Sissy Sissy Spacek did a fantastic job at this. Throughout the entirety of the montage that has been Adam's life, we've been getting these hints that the wife is upset and tired of living underground, as any person would. You know, her husband's been prepping for for this for years. He's a little kooky and is just overly concerned about fallout. And it's not ever anything that she was concerned about. She was not ready for this. She had didn't have time to mentally prepare. This has just right. been her life for 30 years. But we've been seeing it, her just getting more and more annoyed with being down in the shelter. Yeah. At this point, when the doors have unlocked and her husband has gone out and seen things and come back, she's like, okay, well, things are weird up there, but that's fine. Like, we're going to go up and it's going to be fine. And Christopher Walken, Mr. Weber is like, no, we cannot Listen. go up there. There's mutants. There's <laughs> like, there's, there's hookers. Terrifying. There's adult bookstores. We cannot, this is not our world. We just, <laughs> I'll, we'll just lock, 
ourselves yeah, back tri- in the bunker. <laughs> like we'll be all right. The satanic trinity, if you will, of the fifties. There is yeah. hookers, <laughs> hookers, and homeless and drunks. Yes. Even though I laughed at my own joke, that was even though sad. literally everyone in the fifties and sixties was just fucking sloshed the whole time. Like I don't understand why. <laughs> anyone being drunk and throwing up in the streets was a shock like, because of course you didn't do that in front of people you did that when you were at yeah, but you home, can't help it I when said. you're drunk like you get drunk <laughs> and you throw up when you got to throw up that's just how it is this initiates a fight between mr and mrs weber over whether or not they should leave the bunker mr weber is like no we cannot go up there we cannot go up there things are fucking horrible We'll just stay in here for another 10 years and see if the effects have worn off and the mutants are gone. And Mrs. Weber is like, bitch, no. I've been wanting to get out of here since day one. I'm fucking done. Our son has never seen the sunlight. We need to get the fuck out of this shelter. And this fight, they fight for a couple minutes and this fight causes Mr. Weber to have a heart attack at the dinner table. Oh no. So Christopher Walken's character has this heart attack and the family, of course, freaks out because that's what you do. And they get Mr. Weber to his bed and the mom is taking care of him and he recovers and the mom comes out to Adam and is like, listen, your dad had a heart attack. He is not able to go up to the surface and take care of what we need to take care of to continue living down here like he wants to live down here for so such and such however long but we only had provisions for 35 years so she pulls out all this hidden money that she had been storing all over the bunker (laughs) and she hands oh man from the 1950s to for the 60s (laughs) Yeah, so from 60 to 97, to be fair, money hadn't changed, so it still worked. So she hands Adam like $3,000 and has him pack a suitcase and tells him, you know, beware of this, beware of this, watch out, do all these things, and plans to send him up. Like that's that's going to be the plan. You're going to go up, you're going to spend your money or spend all this money that we're giving you and you're going to buy the supplies that we need for one more year down in the bunker. Like we're going to get all the stuff for one more year. And then when that year is up, we'll see where everything has progressed to. And then we'll try and go up again. So the son who has literally been promised that at 35, he would be allowed to go up and see things is finally getting his chance to go up and see things. So he's like, hell yeah, mom. Like, I'll fucking take care of this shit. Except he's not, he's very polite. No cuss words, none of that. (laughs) Right. So he, you know, packs his little suitcase. He puts his uh, cigar box full of baseball cards in his suitcase, (laughs) which are from 1962. So as you can imagine, they have- a lot of money in they the 90s. have appreciated quite a bit to 1997 <laughs> and he puts in um this like stack of fucking bonds that his dad gave him when he was like 12 oh my god so they're like millionaires at yeah this so point. so in in the montage scene 
uh, it stops for a second around 12, 10 or 12, when Adam is 10 or 12 and his dad is like going through this like stack of bonds that he owns. And he's like, oh, well, you know, if the nuclear fallout happened, these are worthless. Like none of these mean anything. And the kid is like, oh, those are really pretty because they're like thick, pretty printed colors of paper. Yeah. Can I can I have them? And the dad's like, fucking sure. Here you go. Yeah. And the kid has Adam has treasured them as this, you know, piece of history. Relic of the past. Relic yeah. of the past, whatever that his dad has given him or had given him as a boy that he just keeps with him. So he puts them in his suitcase. So he's got these bonds and he's got his baseball cards and all his little clothes. And he goes up to the surface. Now, by the time he gets up to the surface, it's been, what, two days, I think, since the dad came up and the owner of the bar that he comes up in, the son of Mama, is thinking that when Christopher Walken came up, it was God. He was seeing God. So when it it opens again and Brendan Fraser comes out, Adam comes out, he's like, are you the one who was here before? And Adam responds, no, I'm the son. And the kid and the bar owner is like, oh shit, it's fucking Jesus. It's Jesus. Like I am seeing Jesus coming from the floor of my bar. Okay. And Adam's just like, okay, like where's the door? Can you show me where the door is? And he, Adam leaves. Okay. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, because this happened, because these events happened over the course of the rest of the movie, <clears throat> the owner of the bar essentially sets up a religious cult around this elevator. The hole in his, yeah, I was going to say the hole in his old restaurant. <laughs> yes. When Brennan Fraser set, like goes to leave, he says, oh, leave my elevator alone. And then he walks out the fucking door. And the guy's like, oh, damn, that's a prophet. Like, that's a prophecy straight from the mouth of Jesus. Leave my elevator alone is going to be Gotta the protect chant. this place. That's the chant of our fucking religion. And he starts getting all the, like, homeless folk in the area to be part of this religion. Drug addicts and homeless folk and everybody. So they're all just, like, worshipping this elevator hole where Adam and the dad came out. And wow. their religion is, like, the leave my elevator alone religion essentially wow (laughs) yeah it's a fucking mess (laughs) so so adam leaves and he was told of course by his father stay away from the adult bookstores sure why not he starts walking and he's looking around at what to do he ends up on a bus he's he is going all around town trying to figure out where to go but it's a weird time of day so he can't exactly do what he needs to do his mom had recommended to him if you can't find a place to stay or if our home if there's something wrong with our home and you can't stay there go find a holiday inn that'll be like the place that you stay so he gets on a bus he finds a holiday inn and or he figures out where there's a holiday inn but on his way to the holiday inn he notices a store that says they buy baseball cards. So he calls for the bus driver to stop and he goes into the shop and he's like, 
well, how much could I get for these? And he opens up his cigar box and is like, look at all my baseball cards. And of course, because they're from 1962, he's got like fucking Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and, you know, all of these insane rookie cards, like worth thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And the guy who works the shop can clearly tell Brendan Fraser is just like doesn't know what the fuck he's holding. Doesn't and it's like any yeah has no idea. And he's like, I'll give you five hundred dollars for the whole box. And Brendan Fraser's like, oh okay, that sounds great. God damn it. It's like sure why not? Now here is where we meet Alicia Silverstone, who works in this baseball card shop and (laughs) whose character's name is Eve damn eve is like hold the fucking phone don't sell your cards to this man he's trying to cheat you this one card alone is worth four thousand dollars do not do not sell this man your cards so her boss is like well that's fucking it you're fired and she's like i don't give a fuck i quit like you were trying to abuse your power fuck this i'm done so he walks out she walks out the door and she forces brandon frazier she tells brandon frazier get out of here like come with me get out so they walk out and brandon frazier's following her around and she's like what the fuck are you doing bruh like stop following me i'm i've gotta go she's like but i like thank you so much all these things he's being super sweet very puppy dog like i don't know what to do this is the first other person he's seen other than his fucking parents for 35 years absolutely he has imprinted on her like a goddamn baby duck yeah yeah i don't know what to do i don't know where to go and she's just like dude like chill and he finally to get her attention is like i will give you this baseball card for a ride to the holiday inn all you have to do is take me to the holiday inn and i will give you this baseball card worth four thousand dollars and she's like seriously sure get the fuck in my car like let's go so she takes him to the holiday inn she takes him to the holiday inn he checks in it's weird because you know he doesn't exist he doesn't have a social security card or a credit card or any of those things. He just has a fucking right. wad of cash and whatever. So he ends up, he gets his room and he's just blown away by the room, right? It's this huge giant bed, which he's never had. It's got a giant bathroom, right. which he's never had all to himself. It's got a color TV, which is blowing his fucking mind. Crazy. And he's just enjoying it. And he goes to bed. The next morning... He gets a phone call from or in his room and it's from the front desk and it's ends up being Eve. And we find out that Eve has come back and is like, come downstairs. I need to talk to you. So he goes downstairs and is, and she is like, I cannot accept this. I should accept this, but I can't, this is way too much money. Like I can't consciously take this from you. I like, it's too much. Here's your card back. Just let me go away. I'm done. Like, here's your card. I I can't, this is too much. Wow. And he's like, really? No, 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 no. The the moral, the moral and like ethical, like verisimilitude of, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he's just like, no, 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 no. But, 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 but you're awesome. And I need help. Like, 
I don't, how do I, how do I get you to stick around me to help me deal, do with what I right. do? And she is basically like, or he says, he says, did you get fired from your job like last night? Like, was that you? Was that your job? Like, did I cost you your job? And she's like, yeah, but it's fine. I'm, you know, I've got a bunch of job interviews today. I've got to go find whatever. And he's like, well, what if you worked for me? And she said, I'll well, pay you in these fucking cards. And <laughs> she's, she's like, she's like, what's the, what's the pay? Like, I would need to make at least a thousand dollars a week. And he's like, all right, done. Like, that's, that's no biggie to him. He's got one card worth fucking four thousand dollars. Here's this card for the next month. You know, like he's yeah, he, so he was pure, like, and she's apparently an actually good fucking person. You know, yeah. like damn. Yeah. So he was like, "Here, like, uh, I will pay you a thousand dollars a week, whatever you want. Like, just work for me. I have a bunch of stuff to do, and I'm gonna need help for it. I'm gonna need help doing it." So she's like, okay, yes, let's do it. I agree. Meet me here tomorrow at this time and we'll take care of it. So the next bit of it is them going through just stocking up grocery stores and different types of stores because they need a bunch of different things for the bunker. They need batteries and tobacco and all these just insane amounts of things and they fill up a bunch of storage rooms together and all the while it's very clear that adam is in love with eve he has been in love with her from the minute he saw her and eve and eve of course is problematic and falls for the wrong guy all the time we see a moment where her ex-boyfriend pops in and guess who it is nathan fillion like that's just Damn. the type of guy that she's into. Yeah. Oh my God. Cameo by Nathan Fillion. Holy yeah. shit. Pre-Firefly Nathan Fillion. What so, the? So uh, we get the gist that she is into looks and not really into substance and has just really bad choices in men. Right. And she is fighting an attraction to Adam very hard. She's like, I can't like him. He's not my kind of guy. Like he's too sweet. He's like this innocent puppy. That's not, that's not me. Right. Um, over the course, over the next bit of time, you know, they're gathering stuff for their fallout shelter. She introduces him to her roommate and they become friends. He ends up starting to work with uh, them as well to help, things along her gay best friend roommate it's fucking adorable amazing and towards the end 1997 progressive it was incredibly progressive though it was played by a straight man so like of course but uh, i mean you can only ask for so much in the 90s but yeah you can only get so progressive i guess in 1997 but they are finishing stocking up getting all the things that they need and as they're nearing the end of it Adam stops Eve and is like, okay, I know that you don't feel this way about me or don't have feelings for me, but I need you to do one last thing for me before, you know, I go back to go back home. He keeps saying he's out of town. He hasn't told anyone that he's from a bunker. Right. He's like, I need you to help me find a wife. And she's like, okay, I can do that. She says, even though she's already starting to fall in love with him. 
So they go to a club called the 40s club. And he's excited because, you know, he just got this makeover from the gay best friend. All his wardrobe has changed. He's excited because he wants to find a girl. Like that's all he's been dreaming of basically since he was a teen. And of course. He's he very excited. Literally no one else other than his parents. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sure. I He's totally very excited relatable. to find a wife. And, you know, Eve is still viewing this as a business transaction. Is like, yeah, let's find you a wife. Like, fuck it. So they go to this 40s club and they're very excited because this is the kind of music, exactly the kind of music that he's been listening to his whole life. It's the kind of dance style that he's been learning his whole life every day right. with his mom. Like he's here for it. In his fucking element, yeah. Yeah, so he makes some eyes with a girl across the bar and he goes and asks her to dance and he ends up dancing with her and her friend and he fucking does this elaborate swing dance set with these two women and everyone, you know, just like in any movie, whenever the main person does a dance, anything, the whole mm. crowd like clears, they get a big ah, circle. Shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brendan Fraser just dances with these two fucking women and it's incredible and dorky and amazing. And while this is happening, Eve is sitting at a booth watching it happen and is getting fucking pissed. She's so jealous and mad. She's starting to realize that she actually fucking has feelings for him and doesn't know how to deal with the fact that she has feelings for this dope of a person, basically. Right. Her gay friend calls her out on it and is like, clearly you're in love with him like what the fuck and she's like you know what just go to the bathroom go to the bathroom and he, she forces listen, him to go to the bathroom question the gaydar bitch listen the gay yeah. people queer people we fucking see it we see the connections on other people you have to listen to us we are gurus yeah so she sends him away to the bathroom and she calls uh adam over you know after the big dance number is finished and they're they start to talk and she's like i just need you to tell me the truth there's no way you're just from out of town from alaska or whatever bullshit lie you've been telling me like there's no way that you know how to dance that that good and know how to do all these different things with and are so smart and all these like what the fuck is the truth tell me the truth and he starts to tell her the truth And then Nathan Fillion pops up and whisks her away to the bar to have a drink. I'm so upset. So gay best friend comes back and is like, the fuck? And notices that she left to go to the bar to go talk to Nathan Fillion is like, okay, well, this is stupid. Let's go. Like, let's leave. So him and Brandon Frazier go to go leave and they stop and talk to Eve to be like, what the fuck and nathan fillion tries to start a fight with adam and every time nathan fillion tries to punch adam or catch adam off guard uh brandon frazier ends up punching nathan fillion in the face so brandon frazier punches nathan fillion in the face like four times because (laughs) nathan fillion's character is like oh well you know we're not we're not gonna fight we're not gonna fight we're not gonna fight sneak attack and fucking right. gets caught in the face every fucking time because Brendan Fraser has been studying boxing his entire life down in the fucking right. fallout shelter. What else is he fucking doing <laughs> for fucking real? So Nathan Fillion leaves. He's like, uh, 
sad and wounded uh but who gives a fuck because he's the asshole of the story he leaves eve gets mad that adam like showed any type of anger or defense and like fought at all and she storms out and leaves which is understandable i guess um and then do not accept the story the story kind of follows eve on her way home and she gets home and she's frustrated with herself because she's finally starting to realize she has feelings for adam and she's going through all these frustrating things and then her roommate shows up and calls her out like clearly you have a thing for adam what the fuck just say something what are you doing and it convinces and she's confused because when she left adam was with the best friend like they were together at the bar. She figured that they would be together when they got to her place. Like they right. were going to end up together. But he's not there. Yeah. And the gay friend's like, no, he left with Sophie. And she's kind of a hoe, as we've seen throughout the story. And right. she gets super upset and is like, well, I'm going to go over to Sophie's and like give her a piece of my mind, give him a piece of my mind. Like I can't <laughs> let that, that bitch happen. Ass down. Yeah. So she storms out, goes to her car, is about to start her car. And then Adam walks up to the window and taps on it and is like, Eve. And it freaks her out and she jumps out of the car and she like rolls her ankle or no, she scrapes her knee. Oh no. She rolls, she like jumps out of the car because she's scared and she (laughs) scrapes her knee. So they go in the house and he's fixing up her knee because he's very well versed in first aid, of course. And he fixes up her knee and it's this very cute, romantic, like he's blowing on her knee all soft and it's just, it's fucking cute. Yeah. And then they end up kissing because it's adorable, of course. course. They end up kissing and they kiss a little bit and she's like, wait a minute. I like, I need to know the truth. Like what, what are we doing? Because you've been like stockpiling meat and shit. Right. What? what job are we doing weird ass shit yes (laughs) like and and you can dance and you can speak french and like all this weird shit has happened like what what are we doing and who are you and then he tells her like i grew up in a fallout shelter when from when the bombs went off and you know this is my first time at the surface you know, I grew up with my parents and all these things. He tells her the story and she's just like, I think it's time for you to call a cab. Like we should, we should call yeah. a cab. You, sh- you should You're go home. She's freaked out. obviously lying to me. She's yeah. freaked out. So he goes back to the hotel and thinks nothing of it, right? The next day, um, the best friend and Adam are driving around town looking for the bar where the elevator is to get down into the fallout shelter because he can't remember where it is because it was his first time on the surface and he doesn't know so he notices he notices an adult bookstore which he knows is right next door to the bar and he's like oh shit i think i found it and he ends up going in and noticing yes that's that's the shelter so then him and the best friend go to eve's house they're excited because they finally found the place and when they walk in Eve is accompanied by two other people and we find out that she has called adult protective services on him because of what has happened because of what he told her 
she doesn't know how to reconcile this insane story. And she's concerned for her life because she's in this weird relationship now with this person who claims to be from underground and has never been, you know, it's just this weird situation. And she was scared. So she calls Adult Protective Services. Totally understandable. Yeah. Rightfully so. Adult Protective Services is like, you need to come with us. Like, it's time to go. And he panics because all he wants to do is go back home to the shelter. Like, clearly he knows that he, like, crossed a line or something with Eve. And he just wants to go home. He doesn't understand what is happening. Yeah. No. He's just eager to get back home to the shelter. He wants to go home. He outruns the male uh, adult protective services person and gets in the moving truck that he was had rented or whatever and leaves and he makes it back to the bar and is able to convince the reverend now he has a name (laughs) right yes there is there is a cult church here now yeah yes he convinces (laughs) the reverend and his entire church to help him unload all of the supplies that he's gotten into the bomb shelter so he gets to the shelter or into the fallout shelter so he goes down to the shelter he introduces the reverend to his mom and dad and is like he and his church are gonna figure it all out they're gonna bring all our stuff down and we're gonna figure we're gonna do all that so they're working on it he empties out all of the storage units he had filled with supplies they reload the bomb shelter and as they're finishing uh, Brandon Frazier is walking or Adam is walking down the street and Eve is like, fuck, I fucked up. I have to find him. Like, I'm sure oh. this is true. Like, is there anywhere you guys went while you guys were driving around today, finishing up stuff where you, you might've stopped where he would, where he would be. And the best friend is like, yeah, we stopped at an adult bookstore. And she's like, the fuck? Like he wouldn't go to an adult <laughs> bookstore. Question mark. So She's searching in this area where they stopped trying to find him. And she happens to see him walking down the street as he's headed back into the bar to leave. And she Mm. runs up to him and runs into his arms and kisses him. Of course, because she fucking loves him. And she's, she's brought his box of baseball cards and his suitcase full of bonds and all these different things that they found. She's brought them all to him. While they were looking for him, I need to mention, the gay best friend finds the bonds in his suitcase and is like, holy shit, these are bonds for like AT&T and IBM and all these different things. And like hundreds of stocks for these different companies. And he calls one of his gay broker friends and is like, hey, how much are these worth? And and the guy's like, millions of dollars like one just this one bond is worth millions right so they find adam and she kisses him and he's like okay well now i need you to come down to the shelter with me in the shelter with me like i need you to meet my parents and understand that i wasn't lying this is the truth right so she goes down into the shelter and she meets his parents it's fucking adorable at that point they have dinner with the parents and they're talking about everything and um you know eve mentions to the mom that she's from pasadena because that's a thing that 
the mom had told Adam like, Hey, you should look for a girl from Pasadena because those are the best girls or whatever. So they, they like hit it off and it's fucking adorable. And after dinner, they tell the parents or during dinner, they're, they tell the parents, here's the deal. I want you to seal up the bunker for two months, set the clocks for two months. Eve and I are going to go up. We're going to get some things sorted. And in two months, you guys come back or we'll come back and you'll come out with us and we will, you know, we'll have it figured out. They lock the parents down in there for another two months. And then Adam and Eve get to work. They sell all of the bonds that he had and all of the baseball cards that he had and are now fucking millionaires. Yeah, like gajillionaires. Bajillionaires. Like they have so much <laughs> fucking money. And with that money, they find this big plot of land uh, out in the hills somewhere outside of L- like greater LA, build this beautiful replica of the Weber's house from 1962 on this big plot of land. And of course they get it done in two months because money is absolutely no object. They're fucking rich. Right. So they have this beautiful house built for the parents and the end of the movie happens and they pull the, they get the parents out of the shelter. They bring them to this new replica house and they show them and they're so happy and so excited. You know, Adam and Eve are still dating. They're in very much in love. The parents are are excited. The, The mom is ecstatic to be out of the fucking fallout shelter and the dad's like "Eh, it's just like our fallout shelter like it's it's okay it's not great it's not anything it's just like our fallout shelter and the mom's like sitting standing in the grass looking up at like the open grass area of their yard and the fucking sky and it's just like bitch no this is different fuck you this is beautiful the movie ends with Adam sitting down with his dad and telling his dad, guess what? The bombs never happened. It was an airplane that crashed on our house in 1962. Like this was, this never happened. And the dad is just like, oh yeah, (laughs) right. Sure. Sure. That's what the news, (laughs) that's what the news wants you to believe. (laughs) Okay. Okay, son. I believe you. Right. Never tell, never tell your mother this, because he knows the mom would be fucking livid, and he doesn't right. believe it. But he's like, "Cool, whatever." But he also and, knows exactly. He also yeah. knows where his bread is buttered, for sure. Yeah. And then the movie ends, and the Webers get this beautiful house that looks just like their house from the '60s. You know, Adam and yeah. Eve are still dating; they're together. The gay best friend is there. He's helping this whole situation work out. It's fucking great go watch this amazing. movie i fucking love blaster in the past so much it's so it's amazing oh so good so yeah that is blaster in the past it is a fucking wonderful movie and the love story between adam and eve as cheesy as that is is adorable and I way know. better than wuthering heights there is no abuse no a, th- a thousand gazillion percent one I cannot guarantee it enough. Way better. It's this movie is incredible and I love it. And the soundtrack, <laughs> the soundtrack is fantastic. It's very, it is all encompassing of the 90s. Like not only are you getting the like alt rock 
stuff that's on the radio stations, like when they're in the car and driving around, but you're getting some of the like 60s stuff from like Perry Como is playing throughout the bomb shelter and all these things. And you're getting like peak 90s, like zoot suit level stuff when they go to the 40s club. So you're hearing things like cherry pop and daddies and it's just- it is nice. fucking I was going to say, is there ska? Because if it's not ska, it's not the late 90s is all I'm fucking it's, saying. It's not quite ska, but it's close and it's close enough. Like it works. <laughs> the dance, the dancing is very reminiscent of 90s, uh, the ska scene, <laughs> the early ska like scene. Seven word synopsis, Wuthering Heights. Ugh. Um, I'll go, I'll go first because I already have okay. mine figured out. So you think saying, about it. You've been thinking about it. You have yours. Yeah, you figure it out. Where's my thing? Okay. Every character basically petties themselves to death. <laughs> True. Hashtag facts uh, for sure. I don't know if I would be able to top that. Oh my god, that's pretty great. Yeah. Um, why why is <laughs> Wuthering Heights a classic novel? I don't I don't understand why this story no, got Hold on, hold on. Psh, psh, stop. My seven word synopsis. Why is Wuthering Heights a classic novel? <laughs> <laughs> Glad I could give that one to you. Like I it yeah. this shit is I don't understand how this is a classic story. It's literally just fee- people fucking abusing each other and being petty as fuck until they die. And then that's it. That's the end. Truly. 1,000%. I don't. Okay. There it is. Seven words. <laughs> seven words synopsis on blast from the past. All right. Adam and Eve, but make it fashion. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. Okay, mine is Fallout Fear causes culture shocked sun surface bound. Very yeah. good. Very literal. Yeah. Quite. Literally. Wow. I am so <laughs> upset right now. It's going to be a thing. You hurt me in every way possible. You liked it. <laughs> this has been a good one. This has been a good episode. It's been great. Yes. Fucking fantastic. All right. So that has Hello, been that has been Wuthering Heights and Blast from the Past. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Woo-hoo. Susan Dorda for our wonderful artwork you can find her work at the best www.susandorda.com spelled d-o-r-t-a you can figure that out for yourselves you can find (laughs) us on twitter at allentown pod you can find us on facebook at allentown presents you can email us at allentownpresents at gmail.com and of course we are available to stream wherever it is that you listen to podcasts so recommend us to everyone you know and you can check us out on you know we're on spotify and itunes and all of that everything everything that exists you listen to we're on, it on it. that 
we're probably on it. And in fact, speaking of that, whatever uh, platform you are listening to us on, if you would like to support us, one of the best things that you can possibly do is leave us a rating and review wherever it is that you are listening to us. It helps us in the algorithms on the uh, platforms as well as the internet to uh, help boost our listening so that they uh, spread the word on the fun, uh, crazy, drunken, classic, literaturely times that is real lit. Don't point at me. Listen, you said it. I you feel, said it. It's going to be a thing. Yes. I feel violated and I think I may have possibly been like in body snatched sort of cult but sam's in body snatched where we she are. used the word literally it's becoming a thing <laughs> tag us on Ugh. twitter hashtag literally we love you thank you so much for listening you. i don't hate you but i hate you the person i'm looking in the eyes of right now i love you guys yes thank you so much for listening we love you so much and we will see you again in a couple of weeks with our next episode and as always it's been real and it's been